actually joined with Maya McBriar. We're going to discuss Laura Palmer and everything relating to Laura and the Secret Diary. But before we get into that, I'll hand over the mic so Maya can introduce herself further. Hi, I'm Maya from Twin Peaks Fanatic. Looking forward to talking about the Secret Diary. So I guess one thing I'll mention is that is that because the way Jennifer Lynch wrote it, it does imply that if we're going with the book, she dies in 1990. So what I did for my notes uh, is that I just have everything a year back. So uh, the book starts in 84, but I start my notes at 83, just to eliminate any confusion. But with that out of the way, I guess we'll get into the book itself. And I think one of the first things that's worth mentioning is that uh, Laura, when she gets the book, her diary for the 12th birthday, uh, one of the big things that she puts out is that she's very upfront about putting every dark secret that she has in this diary. Uh, was there anything that you had in mind just like with that and how much she really adheres to that throughout the throughout the diary? I guess I would say you would have to be an adolescent girl to maybe understand the the desire to write all your dark thoughts down. Probably, you know, Jennifer Lynch was trying to, you know, give the book a lot of power and give Laura a lot of depth. But I do think that it is I don't think it's the book is definitely dark, but I don't think it's uncommon for young girls, especially, but even young men probably to say all kinds of very personal things that very heavy things in a diary. So that's a really good point. That's actually because uh, I remember when um, when Jennifer Lynch, she was interviewed at one point where I believe it was Lynch and Frost, where they're the ones that really refer to it as the secret diary and the fact that it would be called the secret diary of Laura Palmer. I think she kind of just said that it was kind of a guy thing that like, you know, it's, you know, of course a diary would be secret, that the idea of throwing secret in front of it's a little redundant. But I think in the case of Laura, I think the fact that, because in my opinion, I think she's about as upfront about every little thing, no matter how, you know, how dark it is. And I think that's actually a benefit to her character because uh, we'll, we'll contrast more with Leland as we go along. But, you know, I think she's very upfront with herself about like, you know, everything she's done to every person from, the moment she gets the diary up until her death. And I think the fact that, you know, to contrast that with Leland, where it just seems like he's kind of just lying to himself throughout a lot of his ordeals. So I, I just want to set the precedent. I think that Laura, because she talks about like not good things that she does throughout the diary, but I think the fact that she's so upfront at every single entry that she puts in, I think it makes her come out stronger. Yes. I, th I Well, Laura is probably a real dichotomy of light and dark and I think that was really the big struggle for her life was fighting this darkness. And, but also obviously she had this goodness in her and she, her core person, I think had a beautiful soul. I like to think that. Um, so I think she's just, she probably pours it all onto the page because she's uh, maybe she wants to cleanse herself in a way of, of all those horrible thoughts and things. Honestly, that's a that's a great insight. And I think that a lot of the factors is uh, a lot of the people around her, because one of my first notes, it seems a little arbitrary, but I feel like it sets the tone for her relationships with her family and uh, her friends also. 
is that one of the first things is that on her 12th birthday, uh, it shows how Leland is making Laura and Donna laugh at her party. And to me, I think the the big uh, thing that stands out to me throughout every entry is the fact that Leland, uh, and again, we this is through the context of like, you know, when people read it, they didn't know that Leland would be the killer or anything with Bob. But he has a certain charm that he really brings on. And then there's Sarah, who's very passive in her life. And I feel like that's like a dynamic that just, uh, that you know, throughout the years is some that goes on. And also, this is the around the time when Donna, where... Of course, she's Laura's best friend, and Maddie, uh, she comes into town, and they have a very strong connection. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you have anything about, uh, at least around this point in her life, about, like, you know, the dynamic with her family or her friends? Like, if I'm, if memories, I feel like at that point was maybe right before Bob and all the darkness, really, because the book starts, you know, you kind of have a a segue period before you really get into the Bob stuff. Maybe it's just sort of like, a little bit of an insight to the family life before that, you know, before the horrible stuff really started. And, you know, it's kind of laying the groundwork for how that kind of evolved. I remember the first time when I read The Secret Diary, I thought it was just going to be like these normal innocuous entries of Laura's life in middle school and high school. It would just slowly get worse. But I remember, <laughs> I think it's the second entry where she says, P.S., I hope Bob doesn't come come in tonight. And there's just mm-hmm. this, like, you just feel your soul just drop. And it's just, yeah. like, you just realize that this is going to be dark, like, right out of the gate, and that, like, nothing good is going to happen for Laura, you know, at least from what we see in the diary. Yeah, yeah. But I also, I, I always felt, like, even in the series and, and even snippets in the movie, like, there was periods where Leland didn't seem like a horrible father. You know what I mean? Like, he would almost seem like a good father and in so maybe that was his dichotomy too like he was when he was bobby was this horrible thing but then there was a part of him that could be good i like to think that 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 i do agree i think that's though like because uh you know with leland where he does have that charming aspect to him at least when it's like clearly some that's happening in real life but i think the fact that's like that's what makes it so much like harder in a lot of cases because I, you know, he just seems like, so, you know, from the outside looking in, from the people of Twin Peaks, he just seems like a very likable guy, very personable. But then there's this, like, vile thing. And I know that people have their debates on whether it's, like, Le- it's Leland or Bob. But I still think, at least with it being his body, you know, with uh, what he does to Laura, that uh, that's a, that at least is a factor worth mentioning. To move on to Maddie in particular, is that, uh, you know, she arrives and then her boyfriend calls her. Uh, Maddie uh, confides in Laura about dreams where Laura is in trouble. And uh, Maddie is also really good about picking up on Laura being depressed. Uh, was there anything about Maddie in particular, and whether it's uh, her connection as a cousin or the fact that she looks a lot like Laura that you had in mind with, with The Secret Diary? Well, I guess that I feel like maybe that's more of a nod to what they hinted at in the series, which was that Sarah... Maddie, Laura, they all, Dale Cooper, they all had like this psychic connection, right? Um, They all shared this commonality. And even in the autobiography of Dale Cooper, which I don't want to get into that book, but he talks about, if I remember correctly, he talks about having dreams and even his mother had dreams and things. I feel like there's something in families that had this ability that was maybe attracting these evil forces. And with Maddie, I think it was kind of just Maybe she put that in the book just to sort of show that, you know, because we don't really ever, you never see any communication between Maddie and Laura in the series. It's all after the fact. So this was sort of, I think, a way to 
show that they did have a relationship and they had a connection. To move on to uh, Donna, is that, uh, you know, this is a period where they're very much like that strong friendship. Like, uh, you know, I, I had a sister who's younger than me, uh, not by much, but I remember like she had a ton of friends in middle school that would come over and you just saw that there was like a distinct, like the way that she would bond with them. And it <laughs> seems like the way Lauren Donna, it's the same way. But I think one of the things that's worth mentioning is that when she has her first cigarette with uh, Lauren Maddie, where uh, Laura, where she has this uh, idea in her head where it's like she can kind of like almost charm her way to make Donna smoke. Uh, I kind of figure that there's something that where it's like that that kind of leads into everything where, you know, what we see with that, we see with like Bobby tenfold later on, even that they're seeing Fire Walk Me where they're out after school. Uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, Laura and Donna's relationship? Well, I think I always felt like it was Laura sort of struggled between loving Donna and then maybe almost resenting her for being this thing that maybe she couldn't live up to, you know? And I also think maybe the dark influence on her sometimes made her want, as she says, to corrupt people. But I do feel like there was a genuine friendship there between them two, especially in the, the earlier parts of the book. I mean, I do think they had a love for each other, a friend love, you know, and I do think that was real. It just got, I think, very messed up as Laura got more messed up. And, uh, and of course, we'll get to it more as, as we get through the book. But uh, one of the things I was surprised by, at least the first time I read it, was that it seems like their friendship is very on and off, where it's not just like a few days or a few weeks. It's like a few months at, at a time. And mm -hmm. um, I think there's something I do like the realism of that, because, you know, it's like with what Laura is going through throughout, like, you know, from the P.S. I hope Bob doesn't come over tonight to everything we see in the diary that, of course, there's going to be a lot of demons she has to deal with. And of course, Donna's friendship is going to be like a major factor that will be at odds at times. Yeah. Well, I think maybe she wanted to keep maybe one part of her wanted to keep Donna away from the darkness. And maybe another part of her didn't like being around Donna all the time because she didn't feel like she could be as good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that that one I do agree with. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think is also worth mentioning is that the theme of the woods, I would say it's just as, or I would even say it's more prevalent than we, what we see in the original series, because uh, very early on, uh, Laura talks about a dream of Leland uh, moving her into the woods. And she even talks about like her, how her and Leland seem to like the woods more than her, than Sarah, which is actually one of the factors of why I think the dynamic of like Leland being sort of more charming and Sarah being more passive is more interesting to me just because it ties in with the woods of Twin Peaks. I think there's something where this is on August 16th of 1983, where she senses that she was in the woods and was violated. Did you have any thoughts of like anything about the woods and how that affects Laura at large? Well, the woods hold many secrets, right? So, and I think there was always this feeling that there was a power in the woods and I, and I think there was a darkness in the woods. So maybe that is why Leland would choose to take her there. And maybe that's why, you know, maybe there's, there was, I feel like a source of power there and maybe it was easier for him to do bad things there, you know, or, be, you know, they were pulled, they were lured there in a sense, I think. Now, I remember before I read The Secret Diary, it was when I watched uh, Near the End of Fire Walk with me. It's where Leland, where after he kills Laura and he goes into the Black Lodge. I always took that when Bob uh, like would give like the Gar would have to begrudgingly give the Garmin Bosia back to the one-armed man and the man from another place. It was almost as if it was a way of Leland doing something terrible. But also, this was a ritualistic thing where it would suppress his memory. Like, whether you take it metaphorical or literal, that's kind of what my takeaway was. 
And when I read The Secret Diary, it seemed like a lot of the abuse happened in the woods in particular. And to me, it just kind of reaffirmed the idea that Leland's, you know, doing something just absolutely vile. But at the same time, it's like a way for him to literally or metaphorically suppress it. Yeah, so that's my big takeaway with the woods. And uh, and uh, Margaret Lannerman, she'll show up later on and she kind of adds a little more to it. But for me, and in terms of like how Laura views the woods, I view it as like a purely like malevolent thing that she has to deal with. And I think that's all I have to do, have notes for, at least for Laura in 1983. Did you have anything else you want to mention about before we move on to 1984? Not off the top of my head. <laughs> so, so. But I'm sure as we keep, I know the book gets a lot heavier as we go through the years. I don't remember the exact dates of all the entries, but I like that you have all these notes. It's helping. It's bringing it all back to me as we're talking. And um, actually, the one last thing I'll mention before we get into 1984 is that it's um, August 11th of 1983, where this is the scene where Laura and her parents are at the Double R Diner. I think that's when she meets that, that's when she meets Bobby. I think he's pulling on her pigtails or doing something where it's like like it very it's a very 12-year-old boy way of like saying that he likes her, but also not saying it. And Norma actually says that they make a good couple, which I think is like a very Norma thing. And actually I think she's right, but again, it gets very complex as we go through. But to move on to uh 1984, there's a huge, huge time jump because what happened is that she does talk about how uh, she feels like someone read her diary. I'm, you know, of course, it, when people read it in 1990, it could have been anyone or anything. But I think now it's like it's really obvious that it was Leland that was going through it. But, you know, but she knows that there's something going on. And so she's uh, catching up on certain things like she's talking about, like caring for Johnny Horn. She finds out about her pony Troy, the, it wasn't actually from Leland. It was actually Ben Horn that bought Troy. Also, she does talk about Doc Hayward at great length from here on out, where she was focusing on Donna a lot early on, but she talks about like just the immeasurable respect that she has for uh, Doc Hayward. And then she's also distraught over um, losing Jupiter as well. Actually, that's one thing I did want to get your uh, stance on, is that uh, when uh, Jupiter was uh, run over, did you have any thoughts on, I guess in terms of like, Laura dealing with it like in a very real life way or maybe even who killed Jupiter? I don't remember feeling like well I suppose when I read it I don't remember feeling like Jupiter was killed in a malevolent way but then now that you're talking about this I suppose it could have been that Bob wanted to destroy anything that Laura had love for you know and to break her down and that could have been part of it and I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. At the time when I read it, I think I just felt like it was just sad. You know, I love animals too. So at night you kind of relate to it. And it, and when you brought, you brought up Troy, I do think it was interesting on a different note that Ben Horn was the one to give her the horse, you know, because it kind of hints at this inappropriate relationship that they had had too. I'm glad you brought that up and also dreading it at the same time because... <laughs> I remember, because uh, I, I, when I think of Ben Horn, I like how they handle his arc, like, in the last, like, we'll say, from John Justice Wheeler up until the end of season two, where he's, like, trying to turn around. But I just remember the first time when I when I was reading it, it was, uh, I mean, she had been 12 years old, but it was, it was about, like, him bouncing her on, her, on, her, on his lap. And I just said this, like, yeah. if it was, like, Doc Hayward, I would think it was innocuous. But with Ben Horn, it just had this, like... I was like, well, this whole thing, this one eye Jacks thing could have been an overnight sort of thing. There must have been something insidious underneath him the whole time. I, I guess it's worth mentioning is that did you have any thoughts about Ben Horn and like how he viewed Laura this time? 
I think that <laughs> there's different shades of Ben Horn. So I think at that time that you do get a vibe that maybe he was a little too, maybe part of it was just he let, he cared about her in a way, but I also think maybe he wanted Audrey to be more like her in some way. But I also do think there was a little bit of like something scandalous. And I don't want to say that he was a child molester, but in a way he was certainly inappropriate, uh, I think, with young women. For sure. I think for me, it's like, you know, I worked for an after school program when I was in my late 20s. And there are just certain things I'm like, no, like that. That's <laughs> just like that. I think that once you work with kids, there are just certain things that just sound off. And you just think like, OK, that's not actually appropriate. And right. um, and again, like, you know, there's never anything to insinuate that Ben would after would go for anyone that young. Like and the things that, you know, they show one eye jacks where they could have feasibly insinuated something. But mm-hmm. it's just something that I had a real hang up over in terms of Ben, because I think of when I, you know, when going through his scene Fire Walk with me, where uh, his, well, at least when it was in the script, where he was going to exchange a kiss for some drugs with Laura. Like, even yeah. that was creepy enough. But yeah. I, I think for me, it's like, this is the part where I'm just like, nothing's off the table with him for me. Yeah, I think he has an unscrupulous aspect to his personality that maybe we didn't see as much in the show, in the series. But I think there's hints of it in some of the other things in the Twin Peaks world. This is actually the first scene when I I, I kind of felt like I shouldn't be reading this because I, I think of like Jennifer Lynch, like a big crux of the of the diary was that when she agreed to do it, where Dave Lynch said like, you know, he remembered that when she was younger, she would hope to find a secret diary, see if mm-hmm. a girl could think the way that she did. And also mm-hmm. like the thoughts that run through her head about like uh, about if she that she's basically not alone. Uh, this entry on uh, October 12th of 1984 it's the one when she sees um, uh, Tim, Josh, and at the time it's a third man who's unnamed, but it's Rick. And the whole thing is that this is where Lauren Donna, where I believe if it's not this, it's the next time they see them, where uh, they're at the book house and they're like, yeah. because they're smoking and they, I guess, quote unquote, look older. So it's about the whole ordeal about when they go skinny dipping. I, I remember because I was reading on my break at work and I stopped and I looked, I was like, I shouldn't be reading this. Like it, it felt like I was really reading someone's like real life. And I was like, this feels like it's a little too personal. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but I guess, uh, you know, because th- th- I think because of that, it feels very visceral. And you were talking about like, you know, come from a woman's perspective, you know, with Jennifer Lynch writing it. Did you have any stances on this scene in terms of its own merits or what Jennifer Lynch brought to it? Well, I don't want to say, I mean, we'll never know for sure, if in some way she was maybe even referencing some of her own feelings or experiences, I would guess she was maybe drawing from them, not necessarily telling us the true story of her life, but drawing from her own experiences. I do think, and maybe also at that time in like the 80s where the book takes place, there was a little bit of a different time where girls, I'm sure it still goes on today, but you know, young girls, and older guys, it's always a thing, right? And I, I even remember from my own life, you know, you you, <laughs> you wanted to go out with the guys that had a car or that were older that could meet, bring you to meet new people. It was, seemed exciting. And I think this was just an extreme description of something that is kind of common, you know, amongst young girls sneaking out and doing, you know, whatever, getting into a little bit of trouble. Maybe. <laughs> 
Yeah, that does make me think, because when I first read this, it had that, it reminded me of Jennifer Jason Lee's character in Fast Times at Richmond High, where it's pretty much that same ordeal where she was like 15, and there's this older guy that she was checking out, and they do go out. Yeah. But also, it's like where you mentioned before, I'm glad that you mentioned that this wasn't necessarily some that Jennifer Lynch, like, it's a personal story, but she was drawing from, you know, what would be very personal things that someone could feasibly go through. Because right. I know that with her... I, I think I might have glossed over if we haven't gotten to it already, but there's the rat dream where it's uh, she gets uh, the foot stuck in a rat trap and she has to gnaw it off where that Jennifer Lynch confirmed that was hers. There's a scene later on and I'll get to it. Oh, you know, when, when the time is right, but there's one part where I'm convinced that this was Jennifer Lynch's personal story uh, because the way she writes this scene that we'll mention, it just has such like a visceral terror. Like it feels like a serious predicament of how do you get out of this? But for the time being, uh, to come back to Tim, Josh, and Rick, the one thing that I thought was interesting is that while they're out in the woods, I, I forget who says it, but I just wrote down the, the, the quote, these woods got us all crazy. So I kind of wonder if like with, with Jennifer Lynch, whether she's taking it independently of herself or going by her father, or the fact that they both just think alike, where there's something about the woods where there's a fantastical aspect. Apologies if I'm just bringing up like a same question again, but was there anything about the woods that I could or should take into consideration? I view the woods, or at least parts of the woods, as definitely having like a spiritual power. And and I suppose you, <laughs> there's definitely something to the woods and Twin Peaks, without a doubt. So I think maybe it wasn't necessarily a discussion where her and, and her father said, okay, we're going to, let's detail how the woods, but I think she was just taking that idea and extrapolating on it in the book. And I think it plays well with the trouble that they get into in the woods, you know, and it fits maybe, maybe when you're in the woods in Twin Peaks, you know, there's a heightened sense of danger, a heightened sense of whatever your worst traits are and the, the spirits of the woods sort of manipulate that. Just a thought, you know, I mean, everyone could take their own stance on it. And I guess one thing that, that will kind of a good transition with that is that uh, she has the dream about 1400 River Road on November 10th of 1984. Well, this is the dream that kind of leads to her and Margaret Lanterman meeting at the actual 1400 River Road. And uh, Margaret does say that she had the same dream and she thinks the woods can be good or evil it's probably worth mentioning is that I view like everything that Margaret says as like an objective truth. Like I, I know that, you know, uh, Margaret's been written by different people, whether it's Lynch, Frost, Harley Payton, and in this case, Jennifer Lynch. But I think there's something that just really, when she says something, it just kind of feels like it should be taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. And she does also tell Laura that children are prey sometimes and owls are sometimes big. She does let Laura touch her log. Um, did you have any thoughts about the time that Laura spent with uh, with Margaret that day? I think it's sort of, because you, you never got any real hint of that in the series at all. So I think it's really nice to sort of, except in the movie Firewalk With Me, where she has that touching moment with, with Margaret. I think this is a nice time where you got to see that, yeah, they had had a relationship. And Laura... You had that sense when the series starts that Laura had an effect on like everyone in the town. Um, and I think this was our way to sort of see how she had a relationship with Margaret. And I think it's really important because like you said, Margaret has, she has something going on with, in, with her, her mind and her abilities that's unlike anybody else. So her words are very important. And I think that uh, one of the things I think is interesting about this scene is that I know that um, I believe it was Jennifer Lynch that confirmed in an interview that uh, that her father never actually read the secret diary. 
But there's something about, because you mentioned the scene fire walk me, is that how much that retroactively fits in with the book, where it's like, this is like the first interaction with Margaret, where there's a certain degree of hope, but knowing that there's some perilous. And then when it gets to Laura's last seven days, Margaret knows that she's in very serious danger. And this is like a do or die type of moment. And I think, and again, that's why I think I really love how, regardless of who's written Margaret, that they seem to really nail the characterization and why I think that the woods being good or evil is worth taking into consideration. The only other time I can think of the woods being quote unquote good in Twin Peaks is definitely in the return when Bobby talks about Jack Rabbit's palace, about how his father would take him there. And it's, you know, of course, that's the close proximity of the firemen. And of course, you know, where Andy, where a lot of uh, his vision helps, you know, people in the trajectory of uh, part 17. So I think there is good in the woods, but it's very few and far between. But when it is there, it is really worth, uh, you know, pinpointing on. Well, maybe it's like you said, you know, if the character of the person who's in the woods might bring the goodness too. I mean, uh, Major Briggs was an incredible character. So, you know, maybe he, and he was, I feel like he would be associated with the White Lodge and all the good stuff. And of course, you know, Bob's the Black Lodge and all the darkness. And then there's everyone is sort of in between. And maybe it's just a matter of what side you're leaning towards. We were mentioned before, but uh, it's not long after this that she has the, that Laura has her rat dream. And, uh, and, and I think the reason why I'm bringing this up again is that Laura, she wants to hurt herself rather than others, which is a huge part of why she makes the decisions that she does, you know, from this point on, because I mean, to be fair, when you're like, this is, I think she's, yeah, she's supposed to be 13 years old. I mean, I remember being 13 and I would, there were things that made sense to me that like would clearly not make sense to someone else. But, you know, you think of what she's going through where, you know, if she's already on this like spiral of just like terrible things happen to her. Uh, with Bob and then uh, of course you know she has to keep it to herself so uh, so that I feel like that's like the real slippery slope I know that the rat dream was sort of a oh not really funny by any means but but the fact that that was uh, one that Jennifer Lynch confirmed but did you have any thoughts about the rat dream or Laura how she wants to hurt herself rather than others I feel like maybe that is a symptom of the goodness that's inside of her though. Like she, she's doesn't, I don't think Laura really wanted to hurt other people. I think sometimes she felt compelled to corrupt others, but I think she was so disgusted with herself and that, that grew deeper and deeper over time that that was just like a festering wound, you know, inside her. But I think, like I said before, I think her nature was good and wanted to be good. I absolutely agree. Um, I think that, uh, and I think the one thing that's worth mentioning is that because we're talking about dreams, she does start to associate nightmares nightmares with the fire, like, you know, in very late 84. And uh, I think that's another one where it's like, because I look at fire as an explicitly nefarious thing, not just in Twin Peaks, but in all of David Lynch's work. And it seems like Jennifer Lynch, she uh, she kind of takes from takes the same model as well. But it is also around the time where, leading in 1985, where... She has a very contentious relationship with Donna. Uh, she has dreams about the woods and how Sarah cannot connect to her when she's awake. This is around the time where she starts to keep herself as busy as possible, but she's just incredibly miserable. She's like, you know, a straight A student where that in of itself takes a lot of effort. And on top of that, trying to keep this like horrible secret of like what Bob's doing to her. That's but so it's, it seems like no matter what she's doing, she's still miserable. And uh, but then she does bury the hatch with Donna like a full it's like June of 85. And um, I guess the next part I should mention is that uh, she's worried that venturing in the woods has poisoned her. 
she writes about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, uh, you know, the day after her and Donna met her friendship. And uh, she starts dating Bobby in the summer. One thing that's worth mentioning is that she does spend her 14th birthday alone in the woods. And uh, this part, I think, is actually worth mentioning is that I believe it's this day where she uses her sexuality to be defiant towards Bob. And I think one thing that was worth mentioning is that I you know, that the wind rises like, you no know, during this time. And I know Lynch, like wind is another thing where it's like, you know, it's very malevolent. Um, did you have any thoughts about Laura, whether it's like with her friendship with Donna, dating Bobby or anything about um, how Laura views being defiant at this point? Well, you say she's probably about 13 at this stage in her life and she's going through this horrible thing. I mean, I, I feel like this is a time of life when people are rebellious by nature anyway. And then it's just super heightened because of all the horrible things that are happening to her. But in some weird way, I think that was maybe her way of fighting back, kind of. I Like I said before, I know that her relationship with Donna was strained at times and even Donna expresses that later in the series. But I do think there was the real love there and a connection too. And even with Bobby, I feel like, and I know we get more into that as the book goes on, but she, while she did corrupt Bobby and maybe make him sell drugs for her and all the things that ultimately happened between them, I think there was a part of her that cared for him too. All, all that I do absolutely agree with. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's the thing is that there's just like a lot where in in the Secret Diary where. It's very realistic in how it portrays Laura's life, where it's very slice of life in a lot of cases. Like, you know, she'll talk about, like, going out with Donna, doing something rather innocuous, and just, like, this constant reminder that there's something just terrible that she's, like, dealing with, like, behind the scenes. Of course, the diary, we get the absolute worst of it. But I just, uh, I think one of the things that uh, Jennifer Lynch did so well was it dealt with in a very realistic manner, because just from, like, what we see in the beginning of the book up until now... You just feel the the way that how Laura, how how just like just downtrodden she is. And rightfully so, because of it's just like it's just like a lot to deal with in, in the course of two years. I think it I think you would like in real life, if you were strip all the supernatural stuff out of it, a young girl or a young man who is being molested and living this sort of double life is going to struggle between trying to be a normal teenager and do normal things and then have this horrible ugliness in their life and this big secret. So the supernatural stuff is just makes the mystery and it drives home all the, the, the fun stuff that we love about Twin Peaks. But the heart of the story is just how horrible it is, you know, that these terrible things go on in families and in people's lives. Actually, it was Joel Bacco, I believe he mentioned years back where he was talking about this topic, but more so pertaining to Fire Walk With Me, where he said that if Fire Walk With Me was like its own independent thing, uh, that the idea of whether it's Leland or Bob wouldn't even be a question. The whole idea would be about Laura having this realization that this vile monster is her father. And it's I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of like what this is really all about and just like the core components of what leads to Laura making the decisions that she, that she does. But I, I guess to move on, though, she when she is defined towards Bob, then Owl swoops out from nowhere at her, and she starts to welcome the darkness because of its presence. And uh, by her own admission, on August 3rd of 1985, at least the entry, she starts talking about how she does actively control Bobby and feels the need to live two different lives. And um, one thing is that uh, worth mentioning about her relationship with Bobby is that she feels she can't fall in love because Bob is watching, 
And I think that's something you really feel from this point onward. And even I would say Fire Walk With Me, when she talks to James in the woods in the movie, where she talked about, like, he'll find out. And at that point, James doesn't quite understand. But at the same time, this is another thing I feel like just retroactively fits in perfectly in terms of how Jennifer and her father could understand and nail the characterization of Laura. Yes, yes. And I think that's sort of a normal thing, too, is that she would struggle with, uh, you know, well, even if it was, like I said, even if it wasn't supernatural, her father was obviously watching her all the time and these horrible, like, oppressive eyes on her all the time. And that would maybe make her feel like she couldn't really be close to someone in a genuine way. This is to kind of go off with uh, Bobby in particular, is that she does enjoy her first sexual experience with Bobby but she does belittle him afterwards. And she does wonder if this does irreversibly change him. Uh, and this is the part where she starts saying she's very manipulated by her own omission. And she feels even worse when he's the one who apologizes later. I guess the, you know, I, you said before where you were talking about like how Laura's mindset, you know, how this like makes sense to her. Was there anything about Bobby I should keep in mind, you know, with that, all of that in mind? Well, if my memory serves correctly, I feel like in the early years, Bobby was very, he was very manipulated by Laura and he became the tough guy over time. So I think what she did to him probably did humiliate him and kind of make him feel like he had to become this bad boy guy and live up to her expectations. And then he sort of just evolved into that, I think. But her, you know, her need to corrupt, I think, was just maybe, as she said, you know, she wanted to express the worst of herself and you know i think you know with bobby it's there there's a moment especially i think in the missing pieces where they have that very tender moment and you see that there was some kind of real love between them but it was just i think it just got stripped and destroyed you know through all the i guess the mean stuff that she did over time you know I hope that I'm like clear about when I mentioned is that like none of this is from looking at Laura from the outside within from contempt. It's really just like the the fact that what she's dealing with is like beyond unfathomable. Like like you said, even like when you take away the supernatural aspects. But you know, it's like I was saying before, there's no real roadmap of being a teenager, much less when you're dealing with abuse from your father. So when I mentioned stuff about like how she's handling Bobby, this isn't just like a judgment aspect on her. It's really just like trying to build off of what she's been dealing with and like where she's going to go from this point on. But uh, the next part I have is that she starts to sacrifice sleep to confront Bob once and for all, according to a journal entry from August of 85. And she feels like she's sinking in the darkness to fight him is the only option. And she actually starts to wonder a month later if her parents are actually complicit. I feel like this is one that's worth mentioning is that because we've been talking about Leland, what he's actually been doing but the things that she's kind of hit the nail on the head with Sarah, because I think of, uh, you know, come back to fire walk with me when she wakes up uh, and she finds out that Leland is the one who's been abusing her the whole time. There's something about Sarah's body language where it's like, there's no way she can't possibly know that there's something like vile going on. Did you have any thoughts about Sarah and where she's at at this point in the secret diary? Well, I feel like where we or what we learned about Sarah in the return is insightful even though at this time when the book was written that what would become we know was not known but i do think it would be impossible and we see this a lot in families where there's molestation going on um even if they don't know like for sure there is some sense from the one parent that it's going on and they sort of turn a blind eye 
So when we know that Leland was drugging her, but I think in a bigger picture, maybe she always knew there was a little something funny about their relationship, but maybe she herself now looking back with what we know from the return, she herself may have also been under the spell of something evil. So to cycle back to Bobby, because this will be a real segue to a lot of the stuff um, is that she does wish she could be with Bobby but also uh, she does uh, first hear about Leo around like late 85. And then uh, Bobby, you know, he gives Laura drugs and they head to a party with Leo. And the thing is that Bobby, he actually does warn Laura where it's like where Bobby, he likes Leo, but he says he's into quote unquote weird shit, which actually has a reverse effect because it actually is something that like excites Laura. And th- I have to point out is that they're only like 14, 15 years old at this point. And once again, coming back to previous experience that I remember being in my early mid twenties, working with people in high school. And I just knew it's like, no, like that those are two, like keep those clearly divided. And so for Leo to have them over for a party, not even going to his relationship with Laura at this point, there's just a lot to sink in, in terms of like where Bobby's at and like, you know, the type of person that Leo and what Laura's going to get herself into. And the fact that, you know, she's at this point in her life where she's excited. Well, I grew up in a small town. And, you know, in a kind of a place where everybody knows everybody. And there's always like, there's always characters in in the place like that. And not to these extremes, but I definitely think it's not, especially at that time in the 80s, like it wouldn't have been as unusual for an older guy who, and especially if he wanted to like sell drugs to these kids and stuff, like he had there was reasons for him to maybe want them around, you know? And I I can remember even being at parties where there was like a guy, you know, we were all teenagers, but there's like that one guy who's like 22 who's there, you know? So it's, I think the times are different now, but back in the eighties and nineties, especially in a small town where everybody knew everybody. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was so unusual. I just think, all of them were becoming these exaggerated versions of like their worst selves, Leo included. It's not explicitly mentioned, but I think it's really interesting because um, reading this, it does make me think, um, it's not even necessarily Jacques Renault, but rather Jean Renault, where he talks about how there was a time before Dale Cooper came to Twin Peaks where he just sold drugs across the border and then the high schoolers would take care of it. I feel like this scene, strange enough, really fits in from like a ground level perspective in terms of how uh, how that is distributed. Was there anything I should keep in mind about what uh, Jean Renault about like how he thought these were quote unquote the good times in terms of how drug di- distribution was? Because this is very much from that like ground level perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seemed like they had quite the operation in town for a time and maybe they were the only game in town. So they had, you know, kind of like a hold on everything. I don't know if I have like a distinct thought about it, but I do think, I think, I think some of those things in the book are kind of fun, just nods to stuff we already know, you know, or we sort of like extrapolated on a sense that we already had about some of these characters that they sort of have this little history together. Cause I mean, you could probably, <laughs> somebody could probably go back and write a book on like Jacques and Leo's relationship because there was obviously uh, one that existed that we never really got to see. So I think there was a lot of connections and many of them were dubious, but it's just like all the way that the people in the town were sort of tethered to each other. And I guess to put the focus back on to uh, the party at hand, 
Laura, she does find out that this party is in the exact same spot that Bob took her at a previous uh, previous date. And I think there's something that's very important with this because it's about the, you know, with Laura dealing with the abuse from Leland. And also this is where she really starts to uh, get like a real footing with uh, Leo and Jacques. Because uh, at this point, it's like from this point on, she pretty much spends more time with Leo and uh, Jacques. And there's something about the abuse that that she's dealt with in this spot. And then also, this is all like almost a new chapter in her life, if you will. Well, maybe, you know, she was hanging out with like worse and worse people in a sense, because she was feeling more, you know, as time was going on, she was just more unhappy and she the corruption and the darkness was sort of overtaking her so she preferred to maybe be around people like donna was too good you know uh, she would rather be around people that were also corrupt and it made her feel some sort of sense of connection maybe or at least not judged perhaps you know actually the uh, mentioning donna is a perfect segue because this is also the same night that she actually uh meets uh Renat. and she even admit, admits that she felt slightly slightly attracted to her from this point on but also she talks about how uh, cocaine made her feel like she was on top of the world. So I think there's something about the whole Donna, while she was too pure, certainly in Laura's eyes, to be in this sort of thing, that Ronette was like almost the ultimate alternative. And I feel like, once again, it's another factor of where Jennifer and her father seem to really coincide with it. Because I think of the scene in the pink room firewalk me where it, I don't think it's entirely coincidental that Donna disappears there and then Ronette shows up briefly and then Ronette disappears off when Donna shows up again. So I think there's there's definitely some like yin and yang, I guess, for lack of a better term, in terms of how Ronette and Donna are. But uh, this is also the night where Laura, she pleases a woman and succeeds. And uh, that's a whole thing that sets her off like on a more under more sexual adventure from this point on. And uh, Bobby is actually very weary of it. The next thing I should mention is that uh, she does set Troy free on June of 1986 because Bob might come for him. And uh, this is, again, another factor of where when you're younger, there are just things that make sense to you of like, you know, where you feel like you're being watched, you're being violated. Uh, And it's already tough being a teenager on top of that. But did you have any thoughts about her relationship with Troy or anything about her freeing Troy? Well, she loved him. She cared about him if she was afraid that Bob would hurt him or take him from her because she loved him. Maybe that was her way of protecting him. And maybe in a way, it's almost like what she wished she could be, you know, be free. Actually, that's a really good point. I never thought of the fact that freeing Troy would coincide with the idea that it's her wanting to be free as well. Yeah, wow, that's, uh, I'm sorry, that's one I have to like think about because that, that was a great observation. But to cycle back to Bobby though, is that uh, even after, you know, a lot of their rocky relationship, he does show that he cares for Laura when he covers for her parents and he brings her clothes. And I believe this is where we get into the drug deal because I think this is, yeah, this is where she snags a kilo of Coke. This is the drug deal that goes awry where Bobby would shoot a guy in self-defense. Did you have any thoughts about this part of, of the book in terms of like Bobby, like how his relationship with Laura or the fact that it's his first of at least two times that he kills someone out of self-defense? It's pretty dark, right? I mean, Bobby's such a complicated, I mean, at first you sort of, when the series starts, you feel like he's this punky guy who had a secret, but then I think we learn over time that he was also in some ways a victim. I guess you could even say of Bob, 
right? Everyone was sort of a victim of Bob who was affected negatively via Laura. I think Bobby was just also maybe a teenager going on a dark path and it was getting worse and worse. Maybe he was even growing unhappy with himself because of all these things that they were doing together, you know? Because certainly his his parents were wonderful parents. So it's kind of like a strange turn for him to go so dark. But I suppose he was corrupted by Laura. And then he kind of took on a life of its own within himself. Yeah, I always got the sense that he, for a time, he uh, temporarily suppresses it. I'll come back to that later. Because for now, I think it's worth mentioning is that is that uh, Laura, she does use her charm to diffuse the situation uh, when she tells Bobby and Leo the truth. Because... The whole drug deal going awry was because she stole the kilo of coke and it like nearly cost their lives. But this is also around the time when she knows his flesh world in the car. And also she uh, unfortunately, this is the part where she when she's driving by herself, she hits a cat that she thinks that it. I don't think it necessarily looks like Jupiter, but it de- definitely reminds her of that. And this is actually a scene that really touched me because this is where the girl Danielle, where Laura says it sounds like a younger version of herself, where she actually forgives her. And it actually leads to Laura having a very positive introspection. Despite the fact that Danielle is such like a brief character, did you have any particular thoughts about this scene in terms of where Laura's at now versus when she lost Jupiter? I think it's, I think there was different times through Laura's story where maybe she could have turned in a different direction or maybe there was a way out where she was always looking for a way through all this horribleness. And, you know, maybe at times where she was, lost in the drugs and and all the stuff but then she'd have these moments where it was very sobering and humbling and i think that's just another example of it you know this poor girl whose cat was run over and then kind of makes her think of her own experience with jupiter and also where she was maybe before all this started going wrong in her life but that's actually what i thought and i think what stands out to me about the character of danielle is the fact that she actually forgives her because um, I know for a lot of kids, if they saw like someone run over their own cat, that would be like a thing that would just like, I don't think it would even be a rage. It would just be this incomprehensible thing. But the fact that Danielle's so calm, I feel like that that really is like, strange enough, the thing that Laura needed, like to kind of ground her. And um, I, I think that's my takeaway from it. Yeah, that's a nice thought. I like that. She does have to return to uh, Bobby and Leo that night. And uh, Laura, she does feel hurt by how Bobby didn't know how wild she could get. She also does talk about how she feels that the woods and trees understand her better than he does. She also feels like she knows how to control Leo. Uh, She also tells uh, Bobby that she may never see, quote unquote, Laura again, which I feel like, once again, another thing to mirror fire off me is another like your Laura disappeared type of moment. It feels like, once again, it's just remarkable how jennifer and her father could have like such like a strong uh stance in terms of how they feel laura and how there's a certain duality to her well i think she was disassociating a little bit uh, from herself and i doubt you know given the way that david lynch seems to direct i doubt he gave his daughter you know very strict instructions but maybe they set the tone you know for certain things that they wanted to come across in the book and i think jennifer lynch just used her her own knowledge as as a woman and kind of took it in her own direction. But I think it's very poignant and it shows, you know, how much Laura was struggling throughout all this time of her life. I think David Lynch, he did the right thing in having Jennifer do this because I feel like he knew that if him and or Mark Frost, or in the case of Mark Frost's father, Scott Frost, who would write My Life, My Tapes, 
they're guys they're uh, they're like in their 40s or 50s at that point they couldn't write in a relatable manner and i also don't think that it's a coincidence why the secret diary is unanimously like a favorite of all the twin peaks books because jennifer lynch because i believe she was only 22 when she wrote this so it was so a lot of these moments of being in high school they weren't like that removed from her mind like she could still relate to it on like a, on like on a level like that exactly I mean, I, you definitely, I think young boys go through a lot of stuff too, but I do think there's a different experience, you know, depending on whether you're male or female. And I think she really fleshed that out. We really get to see, I mean, because in the movie, I Walk With Me, it's seven days of Laura's life, but the book is like you cover years of things that, and I think that's what's so exciting about it because I craved that. I mean, from the series, when I first watched it, I wanted to know everything about Laura. So, and I think the book really delves into that and it makes it really a powerful piece. I know that Cheryl Lee, she said that she's the type of person where she loves to research her characters before acting. And The Secret Diary was one of, if not the most important component by far when she did Fire Walk With Me because it goes through like every facet of her life, every dark secret she has from... 12 years old up until right before she's killed. So I, I think that's why for me, why the secret diary, why it's actually harder to read than it is to watch Firewalk with me, because there's just something about seeing Laura in real time, just like how she feels like a loss of like self-worth and how she views her relationships. And to be fair, that I mean, Firewalk with me is unquestionably in my mind, a masterpiece because everything that she's dealing with is heightened because it is her last seven days. But there's something about seeing her go from like that 12th birthday to even just up until this point of all the stuff that she's been going through. So I cannot give enough praises to Jennifer Lynch for going about it the way that she did and really writing a character that can resonate with people all these years later. Absolutely. She's a very talented writer. And I think she definitely connected uh, to the character uh, and she brought a whole new aspect of it. And I think it just it just fed into all those juicy things that we wanted to know about Laura. But I think the the point of all of it was this was really a tragedy and to really appreciate what Laura went through. You have to feel your way through it a little bit, not just think through it, you know? And um, I guess that might segue well enough into the next thing because uh, Bobby, he does start uh, feeling uncomfortable about his impending, uh, about the impending relationship that Leo and Laura will have. Because at this point where Bobby is just very transactional and then with Leo, it's like nothing but like a physical relationship. It's really just him using her. And I know that Laura, she says that she can control Leo, but this is still a bad relationship. Even put aside the age difference, this is just like a bad relationship all around. But uh, Laura, she does hate how Bobby can still see the quote unquote good Laura. And she, she wants to be close with him, but she can't. And then the woods, uh, she feels like the woods need to know to fend off Bob. This is around the point where Leo, he hears voices in the woods. And um, this is around the point where, you know, the sexual aspect of Laura really starts to get wild because, you know, she has like sexual encounters with Leo. And I believe she's blindfolded during this time, but she says it's presumably three men and three women. And uh, again, this is one where, Put aside that this would be like pretty wild by today's standards. I feel like in 1989, or in the case of when this book takes place, 1986, this was like really just like pushing the boundaries and then some around that time. Definitely. But maybe, you know, a lot of a lot of it is very extreme. Um, and that maybe speaks to just, you know, fiction writing and, you know, creating 
creating a mystery and I don't I th I agree that it's it is very wild uh and maybe not so true to real life but I do think that on a on a heightened degree there is a lot of acting out that happens uh, sexually act happens to people when they're being abused I, I think some people either like go within themselves and shy away from people or they become the opposite and they almost act out really badly they have they're oversexed or whatever you know you want to call it and it's just a product of that abuse this is kind of getting the fantastical aspects of this but it's around this point what during the night is that she feels waves of electricity running through them and there's just something about, and I'm sure maybe with Jennifer Lynch, electricity wasn't as central of a core aspect of Twin Peaks. But I thought there was something interesting about how electricity was used because I view electricity not unlike fire, where it can usually mean something malevolent. It can be good, but usually malevolent because in the in the book, like I was mentioned about like the woods where they can be good, but with Laura, it's it can be something more nefarious. Uh, the fire I view is objectively nefarious. I feel like I kind of look at electricity like that. I know the electricity, like I said, is more of a fire walk with me thing and more of the return. But do you ever kind of look at components like that through the lens of the secret diary? Well, I I don't know if I look at it through the lens of the secret diary, but I do look at it as part of a, an element of Twin Peaks on a whole, that there are all these forces and they all sort of play a role in the way that the town is connected, the way that people are affected by things and the different powers and forces that seem to be playing a part on the lives of the people in this town. We look at Laura's story pretty much exclusively um, through the book, but who's to say that other people weren't in the town weren't being affected by these forces as well. You know, I think it's, I think it's an element of Twin Peaks. It's just the the mystery in the woods, you know, and part of these forces that exist that, that we don't really understand and we don't really have an explanation for. I know that uh, mentioning electricity like that, it seems like it might be reading into it a little too much, which I will admit. But I think for me, one of the things I love about Twin Peaks is how much stuff you can find and it just retroactively fits in, even if it was mm -hmm. never intended. So I just felt mm -hmm. like it was really important to mention the thing about electricity because I think that's what I like is that there's always these little things of that, like even like like the most obscure book references that will tie into the return or in some way. And I feel like electricity is one of those components. So absolutely, I like it. De delve away. I think <laughs> I think you're onto something. Um, you know, all these things are they're real. I think all these little nuggets and tidbits that they throw at you in the books, in the show, um, these are just themes of this town and this mysterious place. And it's all really interesting. And you could go in any kind of crazy directions with it, but there's something to it for sure. The next part that's worth mentioning is that, um, is that uh, Shelly, I feel like this is one of the earliest references to her. It seems like Laura, where she seems to keep Shelly actively in mind because for her, I think it feels like it's one thing for her to basically have Bobby on the side. But I think that now that Shelly, that there's something like, in a, she looks at it in a different perspective. And there'll be more about Shelly as we go on, but she, but uh, for now, she does talk about seeing Bob in her room and how an owl told her about her es escapades uh, and, and everything like that. I feel like this is around the point where Bob starts to really intrude in her diary a lot more because, you know, whether you look at a supernatural aspect or anything like that, before I go on too much about Bob, how do you feel about the, the writing? Do you, because uh, I know you were talking about how you look at it in a more stripped down, not more, more so less fantastical aspect. Did you think of Bob in a certain manner? 
I do believe that there's a supernatural element to Twin Peaks and, and I, I prescribe to that. But I also think that there's a, you know, an important story that's being told about Laura and the abuse and these dynamics that go on in families. But I think Bob, the character of Bob, even in the way that it's he's described in the book, when he starts speaking through her diary and all that, I mean, it, it's scary. Um, and I think it's meant to really frighten you. And it's the wor- he's the worst of whatever. You, he's the devil. He's whatever. He's the worst of everything. You know, he's that terrible, most evil thing. This is more so about the audiobook than anything else. But I remember because when I read it, I read this before I listened to the audiobook. And I thought it was this like almost malevolent, like demonic voice. Not even Frank Silva, just like this like omnipresent voice that feels like Laura can hear anywhere. So when I heard that Cheryl Lee, when she did the Bob voice, it kind of made me think more so of like how much of this was like, I, I don't know, I think losing it is a little too broad of a term and not really the way I want to describe it. But it's just more so that like where where she stood mentally, I suppose, in terms of uh, in terms of like the the toll of like sexual abuse and then the decisions she made because of it. And maybe drug use even too, you know, that was disturbing her thoughts. And um, but I do think there's truth to the supernatural element of it. But exact was he really talking through her or was it her? I don't I don't know. I think you could speculate on it. I I saw it as it was him speaking through her and coming through the page but i think you could also look at it like it was the most corrupted part of herself you know that was coming out too i do feel like it is worth mentioning is that this is around the point where she starts tutoring johnny horn and i feel like this is like a part where i mean i don't know if it's necessarily a feel-good part of the book i don't think you can really say that about any part of the secret diary but if there's one part where it's like positivity for her it is through johnny horn because I feel like through him, you can learn a lot about the other characters based on how they interact with him. But uh, yeah, she does value his presence and like their dynamic in terms of how they interact because, yeah, I mean, she's getting paid by Ben and Sylvia, but at the same time, she does genuinely enjoy it. Like, I feel like even if theoretically she had she had to do it for free, she would because uh, there's just something about like, you know, how she can approach him, uh, the patience that she has because, uh, you know, he's not getting that at home, certainly. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like there's a, there's going to be a little more about Johnny as the, the years go on. But I, I do think it's worth mentioning is that I feel like this is the definitely the good Laura really poking through. Yes, I agree. And I think the good Laura was always there, you know, and I think in the in the end, the good Laura came through, you know, and that she was always fighting that. And I think you're you're absolutely right. Like the descriptions with Johnny show that she still had a heart and a good soul. And admittedly, and this is why I didn't want to mention it as like a necessarily a fully positive experience because of the damage that she's been dealing with throughout her whole life, or certainly from 12 onward, is that she does concede that she did do a Bob impersonation, which was scared him naturally. And uh, she does sometimes have to step away to do drugs in order to really, you know, get through the day. And I think it's like, it's not necessarily Johnny. I think it's just like, you know, it's like, this is like the only time she can really step away. And there's, like I said, we'll get to more about her and Johnny because even though doing drugs and then the Bob impersonation, that's not necessarily the good Laura coming through. It is very, I, I it's like what I said early on where the fact that she's willing to admit this in a diary, I feel like speaks volumes to how honest she is with herself. But uh, I guess to talk about uh, the drug aspect is that Bobby does agree to do drugs 
It's also with uh, Leo, uh, so he can keep his relationship with Laura. She continues the orgies at Leo's mostly because she feels like she belongs in dark places. And I think of how, uh, and, and with her and Bobby, is that she actually said she was she would be angered if Mike Nelson sold drugs because that would naturally get back to Donna, and that would like damage her relationship with her and even Doc Hayward. Do you have any thoughts on anything relating to you know the Haywards or Mike Nelson in this regard? Well, I always felt like the Haywards were a safe place for her. I feel like the Haywards were like the family that she almost wished that she had. And Doc Hayward, maybe the father that she wished she had had. So maybe that was a place where she could escape to and feel really genuinely loved. And I think we even see a snippet of that in the in the missing pieces, which is probably why when I think of Twin Peaks stuff, I think now after all these years and I see it all as like one big composite and all the different pieces that fit between the movie and the books and the series and the return and the missing pieces and even the music, you know, it's all part of creating this atmosphere and and showing all this dichotomy of good and bad and dark and light. On the topic of Doc Hayward, I feel like the scene from the missing pieces, since you mentioned it, I feel like that's strongly emblematic of the relationship she's always had with them because I didn't write it down, but one of the things that Laura has never forgotten about with Doc Hayward is the fact that he delivered her personally. And of course, it was a big deal to him. But she, I think for her, it's sort of like the, I, I guess, you know, we'll say is that like with Leland, where I think she deep down, she knows, but it's like the deepest and she doesn't want to admit it. But uh, Doc Hayward is much closer to the father that she really needed and wanted. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. This is where Jacques, uh, Jacques Renault starts to come in. And she does admit that she does. She's very strangely turned on by him, and um, and of course, like that becomes a factor. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, that's a funny line to me, but um, strangely turned on. Yeah. Well, maybe. Oh, I'm sorry. Complete your thought, but that just made me laugh. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I feel like that's uh, that's something that feels like you can kind of see even Fire Walk Me in the Pink Room, where he's just like this. And I, I don't want to slam Walter Olkowitz because, you know, he's just playing a character, but just playing this guy who's like, just like large, he's greasy. Uh, he's way older than even Leo. Even like putting aside anything about what Leo and Jacques are doing, it feels like even that's like a big age difference between the two of them. And so yeah. so the so the fact that he's with Laura makes it actually even more egregious. I mean, don't get me wrong, Leo's a complete scumbag, but I feel like Jacques, it just, made, it just amplifies it in terms of, I mean, again... I think there's just something about Jacques where I just feel like you can't get with being ugly on the inside and the outside. And Matt, he yeah. really fits the bill for both of them. He does. He does. But perhaps, maybe that's why she was attracted to him. He was just the worst in a sense. Like he, like you said, he just fit the bill in inside and out. And it, it somehow she related to it in that moment of her life, you know? It does tie back pretty well about how she feels like she belongs in dark places. So I feel like with Jacques, like he's like, like the worst of the worst, but fitting in her mind because of that. But yeah, it's, uh, I guess the because we were mentioned before is that Bobby, he does call like in December of 1986 about killing the guy. So I always kind of got the feeling that he kind of forgot about it, maybe in like a, it's something that he suppressed where he's like, oh, I didn't, have, because it, again, that's a horrifying thing to think about that you had to kill someone in high, you know, when you're in high school out of self-defense. Yeah. But of course, it's yeah. going to be a thing that's going to reemerge one way or another. Well, maybe it just, it was part of the building blocks that made Bobby get kind of become this bad guy, you know? 
he is crying about it. Uh, so it's uh, so he it's something that I feel like it was something that just kind of reemerged because of it. But to come back to Jacques for a moment, he does give Laura Flash World. And this is actually for Christmas where he gives her Flash World. He gives her drugs and it says in quotes, a magic wand, which uh, I feel like there's like nothing good that can come from that. But um, but I guess to contrast to some degree is that uh, she does dance with Leland on Christmas Eve where he tears up. And of course, we can't mention that without thinking about him dancing with Laura's photo in, uh, you know, in season one. Did you have anything in mind with, uh, since I guess we wrapped up with Jacques, anything about Leland and like how much he knows or doesn't know because with him tearing up at this point? I always think about that. You know, I think there, I think there's times in the, even in the movie, in the series, and even in the books where you get the feeling like there was a good person in Leland. And I do believe that part of it was suppressed and he wasn't always fully conscious, but I also think that he did know on some level, you know, he did know what he was doing. This is a bit of a broad stroke. And I know this could go off in different directions, but in my mind, I feel like in the case of Laura and Maddie, that there's a fantastical aspect. But I think in the case of Teresa Banks, I don't think he even knew at this point, but I feel like it's worth mentioning is that if the, he definitely, in my mind, he definitely killed her, that there was no Bob, there yeah. was just Leland that did that. So yes. he is definitely capable of doing some dark stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of like how much darkness was in before that point, because this is 86 and she died. Teresa Banks died in 88. Mm-hmm. Well, I, in a way, I do think that it was Bob who killed Leland. I mean, who killed Teresa through Leland. But I do think you're right. Like I do think he was much more conscious of that incident. And there's a, there's a clear moment that we see in the movie where he, he sees Teresa as a definite threat, but it's, it's, I think maybe it depends on the the viewer, you know, it depends on the person, like how much you want to prescribe it as being his own actions and how much you want to think of it as being under the influence of Bob. I, I think it, it's all, it's all okay. You know, but I think there's no escaping that he, was responsible in many respects for his actions and more aware than we're led to believe in the series. I think that the real irony about talking about all this with Leland is that because of this, because um, of course he's tearing up while he's dancing with Laura, but Sarah, she's really, she thinks it's a really charming family moment, but it's because of this where she feels like she hopes that she doesn't have to choose between her two lives anymore. And I feel like, I mean, I don't want to say it's too late, but I feel like with like the route that she's had to go through because of Leland slash Bob's abuse and also the whole drugs and everything she's doing with Leo and Jacques that it's it, it, that, it, that she can't just like overnight just like you know live a single life if you will yeah yeah well I mean Sarah's role in it is sort of in question too you know how much was she aware and what part of her uh, was maybe under the influence of something nefarious you know it's all part of the mystery, you know? Oh, yeah. Now, I guess, the again, it might be a bit of a broad stroke, but I feel like Sarah, while she was being controlled, there is definitely a facet where, for me, I have a hard time believing that she was just completely oblivious to it. Right. But I guess to step away, I'll really bring up a few more things about around this time, around Christmas of 86, that she starts to feel very competitive over Shelly for Leo. And I feel like that's like a dynamic that you can see even Fire Walk Me, they're very brief scene together where... 
I remember it must've been literally the 10th time I watched it where it was when Norma says, you're not that busy to Shelly. I was like, oh wait, of course these two wouldn't want to be near each other. It's, just, it's this yeah. thing where they really have a contentious relationship without actually saying they have a contentious relationship. But uh, it is also around this time because it's when she's at the double R and she notices that I think it's uh, an elderly, uh, I didn't say uh, who it was, but I think it was an elderly woman who was struggling to get out of the double R. And she felt like that there was a way that she could help these people. This is around the early inklings of the of uh, Meals on Wheels. But also, I mean, I don't want to get into like, quote unquote, plot holes. But one of the hangups I do have is that this is around the same time, because it is around Christmas, where Norma gets the phone call about Hank and the vehicular manslaughter. And I feel like if there's uh, if there's one part where I'm just like, okay, I just really have no explanation. Because it feels like everything from... I can't remember if the show set offhand, but definitely in the secret history where I believe it's like September of 87. And it's like, a you know, so it's all these like news outlets of saying like, oh, like uh, Andrew Packard was killed. And uh, here's Hank, who's charged with vehicle or manslaughter at the same time. Again, I, this is one where it's like, I know in my heart of hearts, I should just let it go. But I had to put in my notes. Did you have any thoughts about anything such as like Hank, his relationship with Laura? Because she clearly doesn't like Hank. She likes Norma. She doesn't like Hank. Yeah. But do you have any thoughts on anything with her relationship with Norman Hank or this, I guess, uh, this not quite aligning with the rest of Twin Peaks? Well, I feel like Laura probably was a super astute in terms of people's characters. And she probably was walking this fine line between good and evil. And I think she had a sense that Hank was probably no good and a sense that Norma was really good. So maybe it was just a protective instinct in a sense. And I think there's always going to be those weird little continuity things that are those little, like you said, holes that just don't totally fit. But I suppose it's okay for us to fill it in with our own conjecture, you know? I guess to wrap up on Hank is that in the case of Laura, she was manipulative because of life circumstances. Like, I feel like if she, if it wasn't for everything pertaining to Bob or Leland, she would, she would not go down this road. I feel like Hank was always this type of person. I think that's why she doesn't like him. Because she seems very perceptive about this stuff. And it's later on, but it seems like she insinuates to Josie. Not, she doesn't say to Josie, but she seems to know that Josie has ties to Andrew Packard's death. And so I kind of give Laura a lot of credit in terms of seeing right through people. And I feel like in the case of Hank, she can just see right through it that this guy is just no good. Well, didn't Sheriff Truman say he was once the best of the best? Of the Bookhouse Boys? You are completely right. He did say that now that it was a Bookhouse Boy, he was one of the best. But yeah. I feel like there's something about with Sheriff Truman where he, in his case, he's he is a good person through and through. But I feel yeah. like it's like not unlike Josie, where uh, where like he really lets his guard down with people. And then mm -hmm. when he finds out that what they're not what they are, it's like it really hurts him. But, yeah. uh, but again, like uh, I, I do, there's that part of me where I really would would like to think that Hank is a good person at one point. But again, like uh, it's it, it, there's no, it's pretty ambiguous, and I feel like a lot of the books, even the access guide, makes it pretty ambiguous about Hank. So yeah. that one I'll definitely say for a future episode. But to move on to the end of the year on New Year's Eve of '86, uh, Laura does spend three hours with Bobby. He talks about how he really cares for her and is worried about her choosing drugs over him. She says she'd pick drugs over anyone sometimes. And uh, she does concede to uh, coke addiction, and uh, she doesn't say this, but she it's mostly Rude and Bob. And he uh, and actually Bobby, he says he wants to be more understanding, 
And it seems like they both genuinely love each other. Since we're closing out on 1986, do you have any thoughts about Bobby's relationship with Laura and how how he's trying to be understanding with her and how Laura's handling it? In some ways, I always felt like Bobby knew Laura better than anybody um, because he knew both the good side of her and the dark side of her. So I think, and I think he did have an instinct, like I always felt like he did have an instinct to protect her. And so maybe that's where that comes from, despite the darkness that went on between them. Not to just throw in a reference to the return, but I feel like, you know, we're seeing Bobby at that point where he's much more mature and much more understanding about, I guess, his view on the world. But it's like, I'm thinking of that scene in part three when uh, he sees Laura's photo and breaks down in tears, where I feel like by that point, he had a much stronger grasp of the world, had much stronger grasp on what Leland did and why she was the way she was. But I think that to come back to New Year's Eve of 86 is that it's really impressive that uh, only a matter of like, like being 15 ish years old and he's like really doing his best. And it seems like they both Mm -hmm. love each other, but there is just like, once again, it's that abuse that she dealt with. That's like the real wedge that's driven between them. Well, don't forget though. I mean, Bobby is major Briggs son. So some of that intuitive nature has to, be inherent in him too i think you know i i think that and i'll say this for a bobby briggs episode but i think there's something about him being at jack rabbit's palace and also being of course the the family of uh you know with garland and betty where there's a lot of goodness that was instilled within him yeah and uh i think and of course you know it's uh you know i think it's pretty clear that out of the two he had the better parents so i feel like even in his worst missteps, he had people to guide him back. And Laura, this is the complete opposite. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and, you know, and I think that's sort of true in life, right? You know, for those of us who were fortunate to have nice parents, you know, versus those who maybe didn't, it's a, it's a harder road for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I know it was mentioned before about stuff that retroactively fits in, but I had to make a double note of this is that, uh, early on in 87, uh, Bob says to Laura, I don't need anything I want. And I was thinking, I was like, that's so crazy how much that fits in with Mr. C in the return. And like how that's such a major crux of Mr. C too. Well, do I, I feel like when they went to write the return, they had to revisit some of this material, right? You know, and to draw from it. Absolutely. I feel like if it was out of the two, I would think it was strange enough to be Mark Frost because it seems like Lynch where uh, he, like I said, uh, not only did Jennifer Lynch admit that he's never, most likely never read The Secret Diary, David Lynch, in the the case of The Secret History, not only did he not read it, he was like, oh, that's Mark Frost when be. So like Lynch is very much, I mean, to be honest, like, you know, he, he created this great world. So who am I to tell him about what he should or shouldn't read? But I feel like out of the two, it feels like it'd be more of a Mark Frost thing, strangely enough to me. Yeah, I think so. You know, I know a lot of people might disagree, and this is totally on a different topic, but I'll just cover it quick. I always felt like episode eight in The Return was very much a Mark Frost episode, but it was David Lynch took his spin on it and turned it into this surreal beauty. And I sort of see that being their writing style, like, Frost has this very, um, it's politically influenced. It's very methodical. It's very well-researched, you know, and Lynch is all about creating atmosphere and tone. And and so I think you have that 
that sort of combination. And, and when it works, it's the best that you ever saw, right? <laughs> actually, that I'm so glad you brought that up because for me, I whenever I think of uh, Mark Frost's influence on Twin Peaks, I think of his heavy investment in mostly uh, mid-20th century politics. And everything about the nuclear bomb is like such like a huge part of like change of the trajectory of like U.S. history and the world. So yes. I do, yes. I do, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think of Frost in the return where I feel like his influence is more prevalent than I think people like to give credit. Granted, it does go through the filter of Lynch by the end, but I think that there's a lot more in the return that we can thank Mark Frost. And of course, I know it can be reductive of this is a Lynch thing or this is a Frost thing, but I feel like when you see the secret history and fire walk with me, it's very clear that these are two people with different type of uh, passions in the world. And yes. you can see what they're like when they're together and separate. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'm glad you brought that about part eight. But I guess to shift back to uh, 1987 for The Secret Diary, this is actually a, a, a very positive thing because on January 20th of 1987, Johnny's first ever sentence is, I love you, Laura. And Laura's views this as like the highest compliment. And um, yeah, I guess that kind of winds down on Johnny Horn's arc. But did you have any thoughts about how Johnny influenced Laura or vice versa? Well, I would see Johnny as a true innocent, at, you know, in the most like beautiful kind of way. And so I feel like his love for Laura would be the most genuine, true, honest kind of love. Um, and so that's a sort of a beautiful thing. And I think that's maybe why she had a protectiveness over him because of how innocent he really was. And I think you see those extremes in Twin Peaks a lot, the extreme ugliness and the bad and then the beautiful, innocent goodness. Yeah. And I feel like it was important to mention just because uh, I feel like uh, Laura needed that in her life just as much as he needed her because uh, you know I bring this up in a Johnny Horn episode but it's very clear that his uh, his parents were very passive in his life uh, Audrey I mean to be fair when you're when your father is Ben Horn of course there's going to be a certain dysfunction and Johnny will not be the first priority in some cases but yeah. I think it's just like it's like a perfect way to show like the good Laura and like how much she can really change people's lives in a very meaningful way, no less. Absolutely. Well, obviously she had a huge effect on everything. And I, I don't want to get off topic, but I feel like in the return, we kind of see that Laura was the one and she was the one who was meant to bring Bob down. So maybe her presence there, you know, all along, even though we weren't conscious of it, was doing that always. Yeah, no, I, I would I would absolutely agree with that, um, that like uh, in terms of Laura being the one that uh, what we see, I would say even part eight with the golden orb and the secret diary is that, you know, in part eight, we're seeing a very cosmic level of like there is this like massive grandiose battle of good and evil. But in the mm -hmm. case of the secret diary, we're seeing it at a very ground level. And in, like, and for her, it's like, you know, it's uh, she's dealing with like horrible, horrible abuse from Leland. But, you know, she doesn't think of it as like this, like be all end all end game of like the world or something. I think there's something interesting about how Laura where it's almost like I, and I, I hope this is a really this is an appropriate analogy. But I think of like an Empire Strikes Back when, when Vader is talking to the Emperor about Luke Skywalker and they're talking about how like Luke could destroy them. And at that point, he's just like some 19 year old who can barely keep his own like he can barely maintain a temper tantrum. And I think there's something about like this person who has this great destiny who, yeah. who knows who has to undergo a journey but uh mm -hmm. but at the time they don't quite realize what they're in for it's your metamorphosis right 
That's that. That is a perfect word for it. I now I have to get to the part where I was mentioning earlier about Jennifer Lynch, where I feel like she she did talk about how there's one moment that she wrote down that she will never admit, and I would never ever ask her if this was it if I ever got to meet her. But I feel like if there's one moment, this was it because. It's the it's the one when she decides to on February 9th of 1987, where she decides to hitchhike with a trucker and yeah. he does not drop her off at her destination. I think was, she was supposed to go to Leo's that night, but she she goes and she has to entertain like these disgusting, vile men. And she kind of figures that she can kind of like do a, like a long drawn out strip tease and hope that they pass out from uh, all the drugs or alcohol they were taking. And there's that yeah. one guy who's just not going to, you know, who's not going to give up. So she, quote unquote, seduces him to his truck. And then she, like, bludgets him over the head with, like, I think one of the bottles that she has. And then she runs off. The reason why I think that Jennifer Lynch, that this is a real life event, is that this is, like, a visceral terror that feels different from the rest of the Secret Diary for me. There's something of, like, this thing of, like, the gears are turning her head in terms of, like, how do I get out of this situation? And even for me, who knows yeah. that Laura will die at the hands of her father. Even when I read this, I think to myself, how is she going to get out of this? Like, how is anyone going to get out of this? I, I mean, you can say what you will about me insisting that this was like a real life event that Jennifer had to go through. But did you have any thoughts about this scene and what you got out of it? I feel like I don't want to say that kind of a situation would be a woman's worst nightmare you know, or a man, anyone stuck in a situation where you're outnumbered and you know these people have bad intentions for you is a terrifying feeling. And I think it's not, I don't think it's implausible to say maybe, maybe not to that extreme, but maybe Jennifer Lynch did have an experience like that. Maybe that is why she was able to relate to Laura Palmer in such a strong way. You know, I think that's plausible. I mean, I've even felt like David Lynch may have had some sort of abuse in his life, too, through things he said and hinted at over different interviews and stuff. I think there's something there. There's a nugget, right? And then people, from a writing perspective, you draw from an experience and then you take it, you know, in all kinds of directions. They went very fantastic in Twin Peaks, but there has to be something there, some kind of real life experience that traumatized her. When she does escape, she does go and she meets up with Renat, Leo, and Jacques, and they do sneak her back home. Also, this is around the same time where she's having like a falling out with Donna, and uh, Bobby's not talking to her because he hears about the truckers like a month or so later. To add even worse, nine months later, after freeing Troy, Ben actually calls to say that uh, he's been found at the Canadian border and had to be shot. So this is just like every bad, like whichever part of her life, like I think this is the first time where both facets are just like completely just like failing on her. So I feel like this is something about where she's just like feeling horrible. Because I know that in the case of Troy, she feels like guilty that she led to Troy in this situation. But she does uh, end up getting her job at the perfume counter and starts talking to Bobby, at least on a surface level, like, you know, a month after that. It's around this point where she starts to suspect that him and Shelly are dating, and she's actually very accepting of it. Uh, she does make the mistake of accidentally telling Leo about her suspicions. It's like the most angry she's ever seen Leo, which I feel like is saying a lot because, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we don't really see him, quote unquote, angry at this point in The Secret Diary, but yeah. he's the type of guy where when she's saying this is the most angry, this is like probably like a violent rage from him. Sure. 
Yeah. And I know that that was a lot to kind of dump on in terms of information, but do you have any thoughts about Laura and like everything going on in her life at this point in 1987? I think as the book goes on, it's everything is escalating and we're building to that crescendo. And I think the people around her were getting, you know, this, this company she was keeping and the situations she was experiencing were becoming more and more extreme. Um, and I think Leo is just a product of that because he's like the most bipolar, <laughs> frightening person, right? But my take is just that it's more of the fuel that's feeding this fire and it's building to this terrible thing. And I think that uh, before I go too much further, I do think there's something that I find almost endearing about how Laura, where she accepts the fact that Bobby and Shelly are now a thing, because they do seem like, because with her, she, she, I, I stand by that she does love Bobby, but at the same mm-hmm. time, she feels like she can't be there for him because of all she's going through. And at Shelly, that would be a bit of a different story. I mean, not that they're, of course, like, you know, we see in season three that doesn't quite work out, but at the same time, I feel like she feels like, that was a better alternative than what she could have given him. We should probably mention is that Laura, she does start sleep with Leo more than Bobby, but then she also knows that Bobby sleep with Shelly more. So I guess it kind of works out. This is where the soap opera aspects start to really <laughs> kind of come in. It doesn't feel out of place. I mean, you know, you think of like how, you know, with especially season one where it had that very subversive soap opera aspect. And of course this is like as unabashedly dark as it gets, but I feel like uh, Jennifer Lynch handled in a very organic way. The next thing I'll mention is that she hopes Bob will finally go away because of all of this. And also she, uh, around this point, she does talk about how now that she's at the perfume counter, she thinks that Emery Bass is just like the lamest guy. Uh, She gets a call from like a, I think she, yeah, she gets a call from a personal from Ben. Her relationship with Donna is still in a very bad spot. So it's around later on this month that her and, uh, you know, she poses for Flesh World and she convinces Ronette to do the exact same thing. And uh, lean into her 16th birthday, she does uh, have a break with uh, with Bobby. And she, she thinks that she can't love Bobby the way she deserves. Uh, she thinks she deserves him, even though he's everything she wants. Uh, and maybe this isn't quite pertaining to Bobby, but she loves uh, she loves sex, uh, particularly with Lynn, because she feels like it gives her control. Um, she's also haunted by the uh, death of Troy. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that she feels like she's starting to become like Bob. Once again, I know that 1987, especially or at least for this book, is a huge information dump. But uh, yeah. did you have any thoughts about, you know, anything with her relationship with Ronette? Um, work in the perfume counter, like strained with uh, Donna or anything of that nature? Well, I think that she was definitely maybe more under Bob's influence at this point, And we're seeing the evidence of that. And I also think it's kind of like what you said earlier, where Ronette was kind of like the opposite of Donna. She filled in maybe as the, the best friend um, person who could tag along, but she could tag along with the worst things that Laura wanted to do. You know, she could handle the darkness much more than Donna could. And maybe Laura felt more comfortable with her in that vein. Um, But I think that behavior is getting worse and worse because I think she's fighting Bob more and more as we're going through the book and the influence is definitely taking over. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, we're only in 1987, but when you get to 80s, 88, it's like, I feel like you see a lot more of this. Um, But uh, I guess before that we do have to go through some pretty intense stuff because she's haunted by Troy's death. 
uh, like I mentioned. But then she also, around this time, she finds out she's pregnant and she doesn't even know who the father is. Uh, she does have her abortion in August of 87, which in her, by her own admission, is the hardest moment in her life. And she even says she wishes to be reunited with her child one day. Coming back to Maddie, because um, I do think there's some about Maddie, putting aside the fact that, you know, Maddie and Laura are both played by Cheryl Lee. But Maddie calls Laura right after the abortion. And it makes me wonder if she knew or if she knew or felt instinctively. But the final part to mention about the about this abortion is that when Maddie calls, Sarah feels what is what Laura refers to as pure jealousy during this time. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of intensity on all ends, whether it's the benevolence of Maddie or the, I'll be honest, I don't feel like I understand the peer jealousy, but uh, of course, you know, an abortion is already a tough thing compounded with these issues. Did you have any thoughts about what Laura was going through and the people in her life when she had the abortion? You were saying um, Sarah felt jealous? Yeah, like uh, jealousy, I think all in almost like a she can talk to Maddie, but not Sarah. Um, that, that's the only thing I could think of. But even then, it felt like pure jealousy feels like such a strong term. And uh, normally I know that this is all subjectivity from Laura, but I feel like it's like I was saying about like how she views someone like Hank, where it's like she wouldn't say these things unless she really, you know, had a good reason to feel that way. Well, maybe it's even the the psychic connection a little bit. And the way that that it seemed like those that are gifted and and damned are sort of part of something like a bigger part of a bigger thing that's going on behind the scenes. And if it's like if one feels something, the other feels something in a way. And I kind of see Laura and Maddie's relationship as being like a yin and yang, like you had said earlier. And I think Sarah's part of that, too, in a way, because they all share that gift and they're all part of the same family. And I guess it's worth mentioning is that all of them have seen Bob in one capacity or another. So yeah. I feel like there's a connection between that. And like, and I, I know that, of course, Jennifer, uh, she knew about uh, Leland being the killer. I do wonder if she did know about Maddie seeing Bob, because that's like, I believe it's the season two premiere, whether she knew it or not. I mean, especially if she didn't, that's like remarkable that she could, that would retroactively fit in so perfectly. Well, it seems to me that I, well, this was always my take, is that Bob was attracted to people that had those abilities, Dale included, and that he was looking for that type of a person to control. So I think it it makes a lot of sense that she would maybe not know yet that Maddie and Bob were going to have this encounter, but that Maddie did have this ability sort of and that he would be attracted to it. Also, that she looks so much like Laura. Of course, we can't mention Bob without Leland in certain cases, but uh, it was actually when I did my Maddie episode with Joyce, where she was talking about how, as the original series went on, she went from having the curly hair to having more straight and looking more like Laura. So mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if there's a, obviously there's that like spiritual component, but I wasn't sure if you had a physical component, if that like coincided with it in any way. Maybe. I mean, I think it's, I think it's all plausible that they would be, you know, that maybe Maddie would feel a a deep connection to Laura and almost want to be like Laura. It seemed like a lot of people wanted to be like Laura, right? Except they didn't know what she was really going through, but especially your cousin. I feel like out of all of them, and it was like, I always kind of took a subconscious level. It felt like Maddie somehow understood it. Like she couldn't articulate it, but she could just understand it because even in, um, in, in the season one, she talks about how, I forgot how she described it, but she said something about how she just kind of felt something was wrong uh, around the moment that Laura died. So there, there is definitely some about the connection with Maddie and Laura where 
it's there and it's, it's it's it feels like it makes perfect sense to me but i can't make i can't like make sense of it verbally if uh, if that if that came out right no i and i think i think that's the right way i mean i don't some of the things i don't know we're if we're really supposed to analyze it as much as we're supposed to just sort of have an inkling and you just get a feeling and it just feels right and i think you're onto something i really do Oh, thank you. Uh, to kind of close out on everything relating to the uh, abortion, she is, however, sober for three weeks during this time. But unfortunately, coming back to both of her lives, just, uh, or I guess really the, I guess, darker aspect, Ronette and Bobby have a falling out because of it. The one part I was a little, maybe not confused by, but she talked about how her and Harold Smith have a rocky interaction, even though she just started Meals on Wheels. And she does also have a dream that no one can see her and Bob watches in her window. And I feel like that's another part that, once again, retroactively fits in with Fire Walk with me in a lot of regards about like how she views Leland and how she kind of just associates like Leland with like this evil entity of sorts. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about Laura falling out around this time and why Bob would show up? Well, I think anytime something was going on, I think Bob was always attracted to her pain and her struggles. And he was feeding off that in a sense. And I bring up Harold. I think he was another person in the town that sort of was affected by this bigger thing that was going on, the electricity, all of it. He, I always got the sense that there's something had happened to him that they alluded to, but never quite told us where maybe he had an encounter with Bob or something like Bob. And that's why he hid in his house. I always had that sense. So I think Bob was always lurking and using Laura, her struggles and her experiences to try to feed all all that pain and and hardship that people were going through. I think that one of the things of the hidden genius of uh, Jennifer Lynch and how it relates to Harold is that I believe one of the first pages that's torn out, if it's not the first, it's one of the earlier ones where she starts describing Harold and what she likes about him, but it says page torn out as found. So it kind of really leaves the ambiguity of like what made Harold the way he was. I mean, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of like phobias of like fear of going outside, but you know, I feel like she understood Harold a lot better than most people. And I think there's something about how there's that so close yet so far away that Jennifer Lynch established to just add to Harold's character. Absolutely. And I feel like there's a scene in the show, and I think it's in season two, where he tries to go outside and then he looks up and he's, they show like the electric wires and then he he kind of recoils. And I feel like maybe there was something that happened to him. Maybe he even told Laura and that's what was ripped out of the diary. You know, I've actually mentioned this privately to a couple people uh, about Harold, but I think what I love, and I don't know if uh, who I necessarily can give credit to, but I think of in Fire Walk with me, where when Laura, when she says, I don't know when you'll see me, maybe never again. And clearly Harold's devastated, shouting Laura's name while not getting outside the door. But, and I forget which episode of season two, but it's the one where Donna's kind of toying of like, oh, I'm going to take the diary. And he actually does take a couple steps out. And I always kind of took that as he has this loyalty to Laura because he he values like the relationship that they had. And that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he feels like he needs to truly honor her by you know doing anything he can to keep the diary and so i think the fact that he actually makes those steps out in season two really establishes 
what we really don't see in the secret diary because the pages are torn out. Yeah. And I think maybe he, um, part of his loyalty to her was because he knew maybe not in a clear way, but in an instinctive way, exactly what forces she was facing. Maybe better than others, you know, for sure. And I'll probably bring up a little more about Harold later because there's a lot about him in like Fire Walk Me. And I even contend the return. So I'll save that for after that. But I do think it is worth mentioning is that Baddis does tell Laura about One-Eyed Jacks and Ronette would subsequently join. And she does break her sobriety by, uh, you know, diving back into coat with Bob watching in some capacity. But, you know, even though she is back on drugs, she's happy to, you know, return. You know, she's doing the Meals on Wheels. She's tutoring Josie around like uh, August of 1987. Unfortunately, she does have a dream of Bob killing Waldo in the cabin and Laura being unable to run from it. And she also, on the topic of animals, she does have an owl fly in front and she wonders if it's a good or bad omen because it's a large owl. And for me, this kind of cycles back to uh, Margaret about how owls can be huge. I forgot how she phrased it offhand, but... There, there is something about the owls, about what I think Jennifer Lynch saw, but I know she'll never talk about. Well, I always saw the owls as they could be good or bad, but I always saw them as a vehicle for, for lack of a better term, the spirits of the Black Lodge or the spirits of the White Lodge, a way maybe for those to travel into the real world. Um, and I think even if my memory is correct, I feel like even in the secret history Uh, that mark frost wrote there's a lot of talk of owls and large owls and strange creatures and things so i feel like there's definitely something there but we'll never i don't think we'll ever know you know concretely it's all speculative which makes it so much fun right (laughs) no that's and that's why i like doing this podcast because it's just like there's always that little thing that comes up or you find another thing another book that either reaffirms it in some way or you find it completely contradicts it and you have to ask like challenge the veracity of one or the other and that's why i think why what i like about the owls is that that's a huge part where i have parts where i feel comfortable about it but also i know that's like you know i, I would never say it reductive as like a fact but uh but i guess you know because we were talking you know since this does tie back to margaret that she does heed uh margaret's words and she does start a second diary you know this is the one that they find the pilot where it's just like the innocuous small talk type of stuff but it does go a long way in terms of like, you know, when you see the diary in the show and of course, getting the diary for the special, the people in 1990, what adds to this whole, like, wow, what is this thing? Since we're at least kind of winding down with, uh, with 1987, she does meet Jacoby for the first time while she's tutoring Johnny. And she hates how he loves the quote unquote two Laura's and how he's accepting of it. This is another one where, you know, we already talked about Ben Horn, where there's all this like, like, you know, there's just something vile and insidious. But yeah, Jacoby, like he immediately right out of the gate, uh, because this is the last thing I have from 1987, is that he gives Laura a tape recorder on Christmas to quote unquote help her. But it's very clear that that's not what it was. It wasn't about like her thoughts. It was really just all about just like his desires. And He does talk about it, um, or I think she talks about it rather later on in the diary about how she does tell him everything about Bob. But it's it's very clear that with Jacoby that there's a lot of stuff where that was secondary. It was really about how he felt about her, Uh, whether it's like, no, whether you're talking about the personally, I think a lot of it, especially with the recorder, 
strongly implies that it's a sexual aspect. But he does also talk about how in, in the original series about how his like investigation with Laura is ongoing. So I think it's a little bit of the two. I gear towards it's more of an insidious sexuality part on his end. But I guess, you know, I said my part. What do you think of Jacoby in this regard? Well, there's even that scene in The Missing Pieces that's very creepy with Jacoby, right? When he calls her and he wants her to give him a kiss or whatever. So he was always one of my favorites uh, from the series. And I, but I do think the book and then that scene in the missing pieces sort of illuminates, you know, his sort of perversion. Uh, and I guess you're, I think you're right that there's definitely something creepy about it. But I also feel like there was in the, we're seeing it from Laura's perspective and from her perspective, he's coming off maybe a little creepy and, he definitely was, but I also think there was a part of him that genuinely did want to help her. So it, it's maybe it's it's just like with everyone in Twin Peaks, there's like this good side of them and there's this bad side of them and they're always teetering towards one or the other. I, I will say this about Jacoby and it'll, it'll come back to Laura as well is that because uh, we were talking about her relationship with Dr. Jacoby. I mentioned this in my Johnny Horn episode. But I did think it was interesting in like right before they go to Laura's funeral where you hear Sylvia and Ben just like arguing about Johnny wearing like the uh, like, you know, his Indian garb. And the thing is that Jacoby, he really talks it out with with Johnny. He he finds a way to really get him to take it off. And uh, and I think that, you know, that shows that uh, Jacoby, even though I, I think he has some very odious aspects of him, that there are parts where he does care in a very, you know, in regard to uh johnny and in the secret history they talk about how he's very passive with people but he does talk about being transfixed on laura uh, in a lot of cases and i guess to cycle back to it is that i view fire walk with me and the secret diary the same way where it's through laura's perspective and uh, in the case of fire walk we're getting those visual cues of how everything looks a little different like of course donna looks different everyone looks a little bit different i kind of view it as that Obviously, this continuity because it was after the original series, but I also, in my mind, to justify, I'm like, oh, this is kind of an idea to show that Laura sees the the world in a very skewed perspective. And why wouldn't she? Because, you know, after five years of abuse and, you know, she's on her last seven days, of course, like, her perspective of the world would be, you know, th- there'd be something muddled about it. Absolutely. And, I, and I, I hate to say this, but I feel like in some ways she was probably sick of men you know and she had all these different men trying to control her in her life and jacoby was probably another example of that even though it was a little different so there was no time where she wasn't sort of under that thumb of male oppression you know yeah honestly yeah i would agree with that because um i and we'll, we'll get to james because she does actually straight up talk about him with jacoby but up until this point i mean bobby is a little different but at the same time he wasn't quite the right person to like, you know, really rescue her. But yeah, you know, we have uh, Jacoby, we have Jacques, we have Leo, Ben Horn, and of course Leland slash Bob. So I feel like just those are bad enough. That does wind down on 87. Uh, in 1988, though, she does, uh, there is a lot that she goes through because it does show that she does still enjoy Harold's company after all this time. And I feel, I remember, I really felt challenged by this scene when I first read it. Actually, a lot of stuff around this time is that she feels aroused at his terror and her advances. And she wonders if this is how Bob feels. And she feels like she cannot hurt or be hurt enough at this point. Uh, Did you have any thoughts about, uh, about her scene with Harold? Because this was a scene where it was, 
I kind of stop and think about it because, uh, you know, I knew that there was a darker aspect of Laura, but I feel like not from the outside looking at it and her admitting it. This is one of the couple scenes where I was like, oh, okay, I should probably really think about this. Well, I feel like it's even like in the movie where she goes to Harold and she, you see the horrible teeth when she's like, fire, walk with me. I think Bob was seeping into her, you know, and in those moments it was taking control. And that was what was getting escalating her fear because she was having a harder and harder time not letting him in. Um, And I think Harold might've been someone that Bob was attracted to and it heightened maybe her experiences with him because Bob wanted, uh, you know, was drawn to that so much. So I, I guess that's the way I would look at it. Like it was a heightened experience because Harold was who he was and Laura had this heavy influence on her that was becoming harder and harder to escape from. Yeah, that, that I, that's a really good way to put it because, um, I, again, it's like what I was saying before is that there's just something about uh, how we kind of view Laura, not just from the show, but like I, I think it's just like what we see from her 12th birthday up until this point where it just feels like, you know, a different type of person. And of course, like, you know, I mentioned before is that there's something about if she never had to deal with Leland or Bob, this would never have happened. She never would have led to this trajectory, but it's just like how much it's like affected her and, uh, and how much it's affected other people because she does talk about it where she feels like it's the fact that she violated Harold in his own home in a place that he can only be confined where she really feels bad. And they do talk it out. And again, I, I know I have to bring up fire walk me with like a certain subjectivity because it is through Laura's perspective, but Harold is happy to see Lauren fire walk me. So it seems like they did bury the hatchet one way or another. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I figured that was worth mentioning is that like, you know, despite this being a horrible thing for her and especially Harold, that they did talk it out. Well, I mean, I've, I've read different things, like different people have different takes on him. But I always felt like he was an innocent soul, you know, in a lot of ways, not necessarily a pervy predator who was trying to hang out with young women, but more someone who was so isolated and seeking, seeking connection so badly because he, and, and even with Donna, you know, you see how desperate he was really for that connection. And maybe with Laura, it was so genuine, you know, even though it was sometimes painful, it was a real connection. This is one I've talked about with a few people, uh, not, not recording episode, but I, I have kind of wrestled the idea. I was like, well, there's a bit of an age difference, but what he's doing is also a lot different from, say, Ben Horn or Shock. Uh, also, it, with his, uh, it, it, is it agoraphobia? I, I hope I got that right. I, I, I might be forgetting yeah. offhand. But yeah, there, there's just a lot of different circumstances with Harold. I don't think there's a actively insidious nature with him. With him, I remember when I watched the kiss scene fire walking the first time, it wasn't quite land for me, but I also knew there was a stark contrast with him and then Leo and Jacques. So there's, you know, you got to take each character on a circumstantial basis. I feel like he's a very special circumstance. Yes. The one thing that's definitely worth mentioning is that it's around this point where she gives up tutoring Josie. I guess it's also worth mentioning is that Josie has a very, in my opinion, strange characterization because she has this uh, attraction to Laura. And the thing is that, you know, we're talking about bad people in her life who would take advantage of her in a sexual manner. And in the case of Josie, I never got that vibe from her. It just never really clicked for me. Was that ever anything that really you thought about with Josie? Or was that um, something that you thought, like, maybe Laura misconstrued even? 
It well, I remember when I read that in the book, I did find that to be interesting. But I guess when you think about it, where Josie ended up and what we learned about her character, you know, in the show by the end of her run, she was very troubled. She was very dark too. And she was sort of like a chameleon who would try to become whatever she thought fit in the moment, you know. So maybe she was, you know, maybe she was bisexual. Who knows? I mean, who knows what her true character really was? I don't even know if she knew. That is a really good point. Um, I guess uh, not to not to spend too much time on Josie, but uh, in one of my favorite, more underrated scenes from season two, it's when Truman and Catherine Martell are talking about Josie like she was doing what she thought was right in the moment rather than was right in like the long run i've read how Catherine phrased it but it the way mm-hmm. you describe it seems like it rings true with what Catherine said i think for me the the thing that i always kind of thought had a hang-up about is that there's people who are very you know who can you know be nefarious in twin peaks but there's certain things that just don't seem to click like for example you we mentioned hank earlier is that strangely enough for as manipulative and as opportunistic as he was there wasn't really that like sexually uh, manipulative dynamic. Like, uh, you know, it was like with Leo, it's very clear cut that he is, uh, you know, with his relationship with Laura. But then you have someone like Hank, where it's like, a, I, I feel like he just wouldn't care about that sort of thing. And that's kind of how I feel about Josie is that there's something about that characterization that just seemed a little different to me in terms of what we see in The Secret Diary versus the show, or even The Secret History even. But then again, she does seduce Sheriff Truman. She does have her tryst with cousin Jonathan, Mr. Lee, which I know she was under duress when she did. But still, I feel like she it was her nature to maybe use sex to get what she wanted. So I did. I do hear what you're saying. Like, I do think it seemed out of character. But I think we never the only thing I could say about that is I think we never really knew who Josie really was. Right. And it's like, I guess to close on Josie, I feel like you hit the nail on the head, like, you know, what that kind of coincides with what Catherine Martell said is that there's that like kind of in the moment sort of thing with Josie. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think there's something where it's like, you know, even she didn't know who she was. So it could have just been like when she was being tutored by by Laura that, you know, a lot of those happen to be those moments. So I think that you really are, you you do have something going for that one. I, I hate to say this, but you could even say maybe... Laura's energy was so sexually charged, you know, that she was bringing that out in people in a in a way, or maybe the Bob influence was bringing that out in people. Honestly, yeah, that's I'll be honest, that never crossed my mind. I just I think I just thought of like Josie being the older of the two that I really honed in on. So I never thought of the whole the energy that uh, Laura would uh, would exude in that regard. But she seemed to you know, everyone seemed to sort of have a love for her or an attraction to her or an obsession sort of with her. And this is just speculatory, of course, but I think you could say maybe the Bob in her was bringing strange things out of other people when she was around. You know, strangely enough, my next batch of notes, it actually reaffirms everything you said because another scene that I had a hard time kind of like wrapping my mind around is uh, her interaction with Blackie the night when she's thrown out of One-Eyed Jacks, where, because uh, I, I remember that was another one where I was like, oh, okay. Like, I, I kind of had this vibe <laughs> of like, I should really let this sink in because uh, it, she had like a very contentious relationship in October of 88, where she's scoffing at Blackie's uh, heroin use and then Blackie in turn is scoffing at Laura's cocaine use. And then Laura's has like this, uh, 
she refers to it as a Bob smile. And then basically it left uh, Blackie on the floor, uh, you know, after like she threatened, like, I, I believe that like, I took it as sexual discipline for lack of a better term, but yeah. it was another scene where I thought I was like, oh, well, that's, you know, when she was thrown out of one-eyed jacks, when she described the fire walk me, this is absolutely not what I was expecting. Because I, I guess before I read the book, I took it as like the drug use was like really taking a toll on her. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there's something about this scene with Blackie where it kind of has this like, oh, like there's that like distinct heavy side of like, well, that happened. I got to like really think about that one. But did you have any thoughts about uh, Blackie, you know, how she's presented in The Secret Diary or this whole interaction with the two of them? Well, I I think the more we're talking about it, the more it just makes me feel like this is all part of Laura fighting off Bob in a way and fighting off that presence and fighting off the power maybe that comes with it in a way. At times, I think she succumbed to it, like perhaps in the scene with, with Blackie. And then she would re- she would regret that or feel bad about that and and want to fight it. But at times maybe she couldn't, and maybe even the drug use, as you say, exacerbated it to some degree too. I think one thing that reaffirms your take on it is that even though it says it's late 1988, this is among the last entries before they're just all undated. So I think that to me, like when they start getting undated, that's indicative of Laura's like diminishing state in terms of how she can process things. But mm-hmm. before that happens. She does have a vision of Danielle uh, telling her Bob visited her and this more than alarms Laura. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts about this vision in terms of like, you know, Danielle? Because we, we talk about how a lot of that showed like, you know, introspection to Laura at a time where a girl like Danielle could have acted in any way. Well, I think that the things that were around her that she had love for or the things around her that were innocent, she had a, a protective nature over and wanted to fight for and maybe in the in the end that is what gave her the strength to fight bob and i think i think you could even say maybe i hate to use this word but i think it's sort of true in food peaks there was a psychic connection there were things happening and it sometimes maybe it would come in the form of a dream and it, it's or you could even say it's your own internal instincts warning you of danger and you know like how dreams don't always make sense but there is maybe a reason behind why you have certain dreams or fears or all these things sort of telling her she's on this horrible path and she has to get off of it i think i took it as like danielle is like for laura almost like this ultimate purity just from that mm-hmm. one interaction so i think that the bot that bob like uh visited her is like kind of like the ultimate like damage emotionally to laura from this point on but uh, one of the last entries, and this is where we start real again stuff where it's like stuff is starting to get, pages are going to be torn out, is that Nancy Blackie's sister does visit Laura to give all of her stuff. And we never know how it happens, but then it cuts to her having a session with Jacoby and she talks about James and me and uh, Andrew Grievous, I think we're like, the, I feel like we're the only two people that really like James, but because it's the way she talks about him in this, that makes me like reaffirm why I like him. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I have my conditional statements for James. Don't, like, you know, th- he is not a perfect character. But <laughs> but she does talk about how she wants to get sober because of him. Uh, she loves his purity, and she's hoping that she can uh, get out of the darkness because of him. And also even thinks that he's the last chance for light. Did you have any thoughts about James, like, whether independently of the secret diary or how Laura views him? 
I, th I think James in many ways is a beautiful soul and another innocent soul, but he wasn't, I know she describes him as dumb, but I don't know that he always was as so dumb. I think he just wasn't maybe articulate or super educated or what have you. He had a simple take, but he knew, he knew she was fighting these terrible things. And I think he really did want to help her. One thing about James, and this is like even before Firewalk for me, is that he does talk about in season two where she was with he was with Laura one night, and she I think I forget she had matches, but she he definitely she definitely said something in a Bob voice like, "Do you want to play with fire?" And mm -hmm. so so he knew that he said it was really creepy stuff at that point. So he it's not like he didn't know. I mean, obviously he didn't know the magnitude of what she was going through, but. You know, that's a pretty dark, intense thing to kind of deal with. And then that's not even going to see with Fire Walk with me, where she's basically telling him off in every turn. But, you know, <laughs> he's he's holding his patience pretty well, like far better than I think any other like male characters in Fire Walk me that we saw up until that point. And um, I know this is a scene I was surprised to find how polarized people were. But I remember the scene when she get off the bike and she screams, I love you, James. And to me, that's another one where it really reaffirms the whole like that she views him as a last chance for light because she is he's the last quote-unquote good person that she sees before she's killed i mean obviously there's Renette, but in terms of like you know just mm -hmm. a one-on-one -on -one interaction he is definitely the last one yeah i think he was a like a genuinely good guy and flawed but definitely a, a good guy and you know he was big ed's nephew and he he had goodness in him and i think she was fighting that and i think it, just as she was attracted at times to the darkness she was also attracted to the good i really like that i think the next part that i have this is talking about the homecoming queen photo it was like a lot of sexual escapades that were going on that day and then mm -hmm. uh she kind of thought she's like she's like oh how do people not know like you know what i'm going through like it seemed like that was the takeaway that i got from that entry <laughs> And even Bobby, because keep in mind, this is pretty close to her being killed. Again, it's not dated, but it seems like it could feasibly be within like a few months before it. But it mm -hmm. does reaffirm when Bobby says that we all knew there was something wrong with her. That adds a lot of credence to Bobby of like why he was so angry at the funeral and like how, you know, it's like she sees it. He saw it, but, you know, I'm sure there's he had reasons whether it was drugs or something else going on in his life or just because they, they had a very strange, you know, relationship for years at this point. So and again, you know, he's a teenager. So how much can he feasibly help in certain cases? Yeah, I think Bobby had insight to Laura that nobody did. No one else did. But I also feel like that is something that happens. Like sometimes we do sort of have a sense in society when something is wrong but we don't always know exactly what it is or we don't necessarily dive deeper. But I think in the town of Twin Peaks, people, there was this sort of oppression that was, they always hinted at. It was in the woods. It was always like around this town and they all kind of knew it, but nobody fights it. Nobody does anything. There's just some, a lot about that scene. And uh, cause I remember watching the original series where every time you get to the end credits, you see the homecoming photo and you know, to me, it's like as the show is unfolding for the first time, it almost it's almost the photo look different each time. And I feel like mm -hmm. when I read the Secret Diary, this entry in particular, that was another where I was like, okay, it's like I feel like I understand the backstory, and it's like it just it, it just brought that feeling of just how different it feels from what you see her smiling versus knowing what she was dealing with at that point. Uh, I, I mean, not even just Bob. I'm just talking about just that day and how she felt about the people around her. 
yeah i mean she's all beautiful and she's pink and she looks all like sweet and high schooly but there's this horrible thing you know going on with her since we're winding down um she does talk about she does tell bobby about the dreams of the woods owl sounds and uh death and lust and then uh it's uh and then violence is a big factor and then she also has another dream about water and likely bob pulling her down to compound these dreams uh, this is during another one of her sexual escapades with uh, Leon Jacques, where I think she was screaming stop. And then, uh, I, you know, it was like when it was like getting physical, like punching her. And they just kept on hitting her, even though she was like really needed to stop. So, uh, so again, this is another factor of how with everything being undated, it just kind of adds the whole, like just everything's falling apart for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, there, was there anything about the these... Uh, relationships and Bob permeating every facet of her life that I think that I feel like is worth that you feel like is worth mentioning. I think Leo and Jock were not necessarily a supernatural, but they were an evil Bob in a way, you know, and they had that effect on her life. And I think all these things, like I think Bob in a sense probably loved it when she was with Leo and and doing all these bad things because that's what he was feeding off of. And her fear you know, if she was afraid, if she was, if things were getting scarier and for her, that it was almost better for him, more exciting, because it seems that his goal was to destroy her, you know, not maybe just even take her over, but also just destroy her. If you want to bring the return into it, you know, she was his ultimate adversary. I feel like the when you were mentioning all that, I think what really reaffirmed your take is I was thinking about that scene in Fire Walk with me. It's when uh, Leo and Jacques start assaulting Lauren Ronette. And uh, it shows Leland just watching for God knows how long. But it it, it is that that Bob aspect that uh, that you really hit the nail on the head in terms of like there's like her going through like this like torture, whether it's like emotional, physical, sexual that like Bob really feeds off of. I think you really nailed something with that. But I I think the next part that I have is that um, she does talk about how she wishes Donna and Ronette could be friends, which I feel like it's kind of like a, almost like, you know, where the two very much are alike in certain regards and for Laura, where one's for one life, one for the other. And then she talks about how she wants to run away, uh, you know, with the cash she has in her deposit box, but she feels like she deserves to stay and is hurting. And uh, we're actually going to wind down to the final parts is that, she talks about how she quote unquote knows who Bob is and is scared of death that no one will believe her uh, until after her death. And she talks about how she wishes she never saw the small hills and the fire and didn't want to become any of this. Since we're at, this is pretty much the end of the secret diary, and at least the you know in terms of the actual book itself. Did you have any thoughts of like Laura's final entries? Well, I would assume it was probably after the night that we see in fire walk with me where she realizes leland and bob are one and the same and i feel like at that point that her drug use and her emotional and mental state were at an absolute high so (laughs) i think the pressure was was you know it was at its peak so everything we're we're seeing at that point is just she's on the edge and she knows it this is another where I, I just I'm just fascinated by how uh, both Jennifer and her father, where they could kind of write stuff that even it seemed contradictory, it could complement each other well. And we were mm-hmm. talking about her drug use, like you know, being at all time high. I was thinking about how in Fire Walk Me, when she gives the diary to Harold, the two things that stand out to me that don't quite line up, but also do, is that she says, "You made me write it all down," and then Bob doesn't know about you. 
And I again, I take it where like there's some about the diary, especially around when it becomes undated and fire walk with me, where it's her diminishing capacity to really comprehend the world around her. And again, like, you know, with like, you know, with, five, you know, years of abuse and uh, living double lives, like, uh, you know, the fact that she made that far is already like, you know, a miracle and of itself. But I, I always kind of took it as like when she, you know, those some of those final entries, it was her it basically in between scenes of fire walk me going back to Harold's place. You know, it's, I, I guess also would be kind of from a movie standpoint, it'd be kind of unceremonious to have her show up again after she said, maybe you'll never see me again. But yeah. again, I think there's just something about, you know, her diminishing mental capacity and then like how she talks to Harold versus what's in the diary that I think really reaffirms just like where she was at that point. And I kind of feel like Bob did know about Harold, but maybe she didn't want to think that or didn't want to believe that. But I think he did. I think Bob knew about a lot. I think Bob knew almost everything, right? <laughs> I don't want to end this on a semi-humorous note, but do you think that Harold, when he was, because it seems like he clearly went through the diary and had things memorized. Do you think that he kind of read about like Bob knowing Harold and it's like, oh, well, I'm stuck with this sort of thing? Maybe, or maybe he feared Harold could expose him in some kind of way. I've always felt like Harold's death was, I know we know that he was distraught over what happened with Donna and Maddie in the cabin and everything, but I, I and it's, it's a suicide, but I, I kind of feel like there's something more to it. I always felt that way. On a similar note, since we're talking about, you know, everything after what's written in the secret diary, one thing I do think about is in the return when uh, Hawk and Frank Truman, they're fi- they find uh, Laura's uh, pages like in the bathroom stall. Did you have any thoughts about what the diary meant to them or the fact that because we see Harold like he clearly tears up every part of the diary before he kills himself. Did you have any thoughts about the diary being at least a few pages intact and on top of that uh, what Hawk and uh, Frank were getting out of it? Well I kind of wonder was it Harold that ripped the diary up in those final moments you know or could there have been something else there? I don't know. You know, just a thought. That's a great thought. Because to me, I always thought of like with Harold where he felt this irreversible betrayal from Donna and Maddie and that mm-hmm. this is the only way to basically protect Laura's identity. But mm-hmm. but the fact that, because, you know, again, we're talking about Leland and Bob and you brought up the point of like how we're debating the merits of if he, if Bob really knew about Harold. I mean, one, that, that would actually be really interesting of like, you know, what Leland may or may not have known. And if like, if he, you know, if he made it look like a suicide. Maybe. I gotta be I've never thought of that before that I <laughs> that is that's that's remarkable but yeah that's uh that that's yeah in terms of like that and then also the pages being uh not torn out I always kind of took it as um with the sheriff station in the return at least with Hawk and Frank that they're in the reality where Laura went missing but mm-hmm. also it makes me wonder of like what what led to Harold because Maybe what happened to Harold is secondary in this in this world where, you know, Laura went missing. But yeah, it's there's just something about like how those pages were taken out, like when Leland would have taken them out, the fact that the bathrooms look different in the original series compared to the return. Um, there's there's just so many factors. And I know that's a lot to lay on after going through <laughs> like an incredibly intense book, but I felt like I had to bring up how the pages could possibly be intact by that point. Yeah. It's interesting because what was left intact in the diary was enough to to give dale insight but not enough to really explain anything 
So it, it, I kind of felt like there was another force at hand there. And that was just always my feeling. But I don't think there's any, I mean, I think that any theory is okay. Like any speculation is really okay. There's so much to dive into. There's so much great mystery in it, you know, um, and it's so fun to sort of go off on these things and think about it. I, and I think I'll end the note uh, with saying that, uh, and this is coming to your whole thing about Bob knowing about Harold, because in the return, one of the pages is about how when Annie tells Laura about the good Dell being the lodge and write it in your diary, mm-hmm. I feel like, I mean, you could say that it was like her diary at home, but you know, if we're going with the idea that she would see Harold again during Firewalk with me, that would add credence to what you said about Leland. Uh, and how like he might have had more of a say in it than what would probably you know than what would be implied previously yeah i mean i think i think they gave us all these little tidbits and nuggets and then as individuals we fill in the blanks you know and have fun with it and it's it's great yeah i i think that ends the uh everything about the secret diary um i guess since we're winding down finally did you have any social media or anything you're working on that you want to plug oh thank you i i have not actively working on anything, but I do fairly often tweet. <laughs> you could find me at Twin Peaks blog. Um, I try to keep the Twin Peaks spirit alive on my pages as much as I can. Um, and I hope to write something again soon. But I'm so busy with life. I haven't, I feel torn away. But this conversation is, I should write, a, we should write a whole thing on Harold or something. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, in the case of, uh, it, well, if you're uh, twi- or your Twin Peaks presence on Twitter, I would say that out of everyone who I know on Twitter, you're the one that keeps track of the birthdays better than everyone else. So that, I mean, even if you're busy, you know, with not writing about articles, that's, I feel like that's a huge part that really helps people and helps circulate, uh, you know, celebrate the legacy of a lot of these actors, actresses, and uh, crew members. Oh, well, you know, it's such a silly thing, but it's something I started doing years ago. And I just, I like to celebrate anniversaries and birthdays and things. And I think it's just something that comes around regularly throughout the year. And when you get to share a picture of the characters and stuff, people like it, you know, they have fun with it. And I, that's really why I do it. It's just because I think it keeps the spirit alive. Well, I, I know that this was a lawn and arduous episode, but I want to thank you for coming on because I know that discussing the secret diary at this length requires a great deal. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to co-host for it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad we finally got to get on the phone and chat about all this. Together, forever